0: Who am I? You sure you want to know? The story of my life is not for the faint of heart. If somebody said it was a happy little tale, somebody lied, I will never forget these words. With great power comes great responsibility. Who am I? I'm Spider-Man.
1: Welcome to Now Playing's Amazing Spider-Man Retrospective Series. Spider-Man, come out to play. Part of the now-playing Marvel comic movie series. The real crime would be not to finish what we started. Hosted by Jacob. You can be aggressive if threatened. Stewart. He's one of Midtown Science's best and brightest. At least yeah. mm-hmm. I can discuss. And Arnie. I've got a line. Come to NowPlayingPodcast.com every Tuesday and Friday for another Spider-Man movie review. Ending in a week of release review of this summer's The Amazing Spider-Man. We're gonna have a
2: hell of a time.
1: Ooh, my
0: spider sense is tingling. If you know what I'm talking about... (laughs)
1: But if your spider sense is tingling, it's because this podcast will have detailed plot spoilers and mild language, so listener discretion is advised.
3: Go get him, Tiger. Today we're discussing The Amazing Spider-Man, starring Andrew Garfield, Emma Stone, Rise Ivans, Dennis Leary, and Campbell Scott, directed by the most perfectly named director in all of history, Mark Webb. I'm Arnie, and I am the Lizard King, and I can do anything. <laughs> oh wait, that's Jim Morrison, not Rise Ivans. Stewart in LA. And this is the host that does look like the mayor
0: of Tokyo, Jacob.
3: And we have reached the end, not only of our Spider-Man series, but of every Marvel movie.
0: <laughs> just to date, though. Just to date.
3: No, no, no. Don't talk about the future. We have
2: set up and accomplished more than I thought I was capable of. I mean, I never thought I'd walk again, and here I am sprinting through the ribbon at the end. This is incredible. I'm overjoyed that we've reached this moment. That's what's amazing to me at this point. I have watched every Marvel movie. I'm some kind of expert at this point.
3: (laughs) You went from newbie to being a learned person in your social circle to discuss superheroes of Marvel.
2: Sometimes it will come up in conversation, I'll be like, no, 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 that happened (laughs) in Howard the Duck, that did, you know, like, I can actually do that now, (laughs) and people look at me strange, because I can be authoritarian about these kinds of things, but I appreciate that. This has been quite a learning experience, and because of our thoroughness, we have gone through everything that has been filmed, with short of, I think, a power pack, half hour TV episode we did it all and now we're at the end of Spider-Man.
3: Yes, the reboot Amazing Spider-Man after we discussed the problems with getting Ramey back on board and getting this film out in time for Columbia to keep their license, they decided forget it. We're not going to go with a cantankerous director who disagrees with our every decision. We'll just start over and take him back to high school because For some reason, the honchos at Marvel love Peter Parker in high school.
2: Well, if you're going to do it again, I totally celebrate the idea of doing things that haven't been done before. It was the hook for me, quite frankly. The things that I wanted were the things that were going to be different that Raimi had retconned. Okay, what is it like for him to have non-organic web shooters. What is it like for him to spend all of his time in high school? What is it like to find out about the parents? That was the hook for me. I asked in our first Ramy podcast who were his parents who said, let's table it. Okay, we're here now. It's time to find out. Yes, if this needed to happen at all, and I will debate that, we did need to at least ask questions that had not been asked before.
0: And I'm not opposed to going back to high school. I don't know if I want a full-on retelling of the origin. I'm expecting it with this film. I was expecting that we were going to get that. But I don't mind going back to high school. We spent so little time there in the rainy take of Spider-Man. How does he balance high school life with living at home with Aunt May, with being Spider-Man? Like, he's got a curfew when he's in high school. It makes it a little bit tougher to be a vigilante at night. When you 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 got your aunt tapping her foot waiting for you to walk through that door. So I I think there's some interesting material there. I'm not opposed to going back here and redoing this.
2: It was the best part of the whole series for me. When I think about everything Spider-Man that we watched, my very favorite part is the first 35 minutes of the first Spider-Man movie, the high school years. So let's do a whole movie of it. Absolutely.
3: And Columbia had this waiting in the wings. It turned out Raimi really wanted to use the lizard in Spider-Man 3 or possibly 4. Columbia, they knew where things were going with Raimi and Maguire, I think, because they had this lizard script commissioned already. They had a draft of this script sitting there while talking to Raimi about other movies and finally was like, no, you can't use the lizard because we have a total reboot planned with a script with the lizard. So use someone else.
2: Wait a minute. They had a script of the reboot that they were like, we're going to be making this while you make Spider-Man four.
3: They just had it sitting in a vault, so when he walked away, they had something ready to go. Ah, okay. It's like dating your second wife while still married to your first.
0: (laughs) Isn't that why you usually have a second wife? Mm. (laughs) That's That's what leads to that? But here it is,
3: five years after Spider-Man 3, which got three not recommends from us, but history has been harder on it than we have. I believe people remember it much as the debacle Stuart was expecting, rather than the misfire it truly was. So The Amazing Spider-Man had some work to do to swing back to the heights of Spider-Man's peak. And not only that, but they had to downplay the years of negative press
2: for the musical. I mean, in between, Spider-Man was swinging on Broadway. It really looked like he had swung right over the proverbial shark. When Spider-Man is singing on Broadway, the fans have to be worried, and that production had a notorious history getting on stage. I guess it's considered a success now. It's still running at any rate, but I know that they were, yes, fighting bad impression, a bad taste from a third movie, a Broadway musical plagued with problems, and, yeah, a whole sense I get from everyone, anyone I've talked to, as to, well, why do it again? Too soon. That really permeated the culture of, why do we need this again?
0: Toys, little kids love Spider-Man. It's no mystery to me why they wanted to get this going again so soon in the theaters. I mean, the Spider-Man films, as far as just a commercial success, pushing Happy Meals and toys and boys' underwear, it was huge. I know why they want to get another one out there. And I just hope as they're pushing it out, they're taking care to to craft a good film to realize what's happened since 2002, how the superhero genre has changed. And, you know, we talked about how optimistic and bright and uh, wide-eyed at least that first Spider-Man movie was. And can you translate it now that we've had Nolan's superhero films, X-Men First Class, even Iron Man, where they've just taken a different direction. They've made it a little bit more gritty. Can they take this happy-go-lucky character and bring it into this new kind of movie take on our superheroes. And do we
3: want them to? I was one of the ones saying too soon. Not too soon for another Spider-Man film, but too soon for the origin story. And when they announced they were doing a reboot, if you go to the forums, you will find me putting my stick in the sand saying there is no way they're doing an origin story. I fully expected the soft reboot of Ray Stevenson's Punisher, Ed Norton's Hulk. Because why would you retell the origin story? That is too soon. I realize it's 10 years, and maybe I'm an old fuddy-duddy for saying it is too soon because I know a lot of our younger listeners, who are probably way too young to be listening to most of our shows anyway, don't even know Raimi's film. But for me, the origin story had been told as closely to the 616 universe as you could. It seemed honestly... The perfect origin story. Why would you do that again? Another Spider-Man movie? Yes. A new Spider-Star? Yes. Taking him back to high school? Fine. But I expected it to be a retool, not a total let's start over like three previous movies didn't exist reboot. And yet, that's what they did. I couldn't believe it. As we talk through it, we'll see if I think that was the right thing to do, but... I said they did it as if the three other movies didn't exist. Don't you guys kind of feel like the shadow of Raimi looms large And everything they do here? They're like, well, he did it this way, so we can't.
0: Oh, I totally got that. And we'll get into it, especially with the retelling the origin. I'm like, are they going to do the wrestling? The whole time I'm thinking about the way Raimi did it, especially the way how tight and how compact and efficient he told that origin story. It was in the back of my mind the whole time, and it affected how I viewed this film and my judgment of this film.
2: Yeah, I agree. If you've been following us and re-watching the movies, as I've been watching them really for the first time, the redundancy becomes even clearer. I mean, I do feel like they were up against a giant wall, and yes, a lot of choices seem to be made, not because it would be the best way to tell the story, but it would be so much different than what had already been done. So, Arnie, why
3: don't you tell them what they've done in a plot? Richard Parker was a scientist at Oscorp, working with one-armed scientist Kirk Connors on DNA research, combining the DNA of animals with humans to cure diseases, Connors hoping to regrow his own missing arm. In his research, Parker does some unethical human trials It's possibly inferred that it's on himself, But his research leads his home to be raided, so he puts his son Peter in the care of his brother Ben and his wife May while the Parkers go on the run. The Parkers are killed in a plane crash and Peter is raised by his aunt and uncle in a loving home atmosphere. But Peter is a bit of an outcast in school with few friends. When a basement leak uncovers Peter's father's briefcase and within it a secret Oscorp file, Peter begins research into his father's old lab partner and heads to Oscorp to find out more about his father's work. Sneaking into Oscorp, he meets Connors, and snooping in a room full of spiders, Peter is bitten, and that bite transfers into him the powers of a spider. Strength, agility, spider sense, and the ability to stick to walls. Concerned about this, he goes to Dr. Connors, revealing himself as Richard Parker's son. Connors tells him about the research and the problems with stabilization, and Peter jots down a formula he saw in his father's file, and Connors works with him at night after school in the research. Meanwhile... Peter uses his new powers to get back at Flash Thompson, the school bully who picked on him, and his newfound confidence has him start dating Gwen Stacy, who interns at Oscorp, but when he's refused some milk at a convenience store for being two cents short, things change in Peter's life. The next customer robs the store, tossing Peter a free milk, and Peter lets the robber go, but in the chase that ensues, the robber pulls a gun. Peter's uncle Ben, who was taking a walk after a fight with Peter, sees the gun and tries to take it from the robber, and Ben is shot and killed. Grief-stricken, Peter goes on a hunt for the blonde man with a star tattoo on his wrist who killed his uncle, and takes out a large number of criminals in New York City, but does not find the killer. When one thug shouts, I know your face, to Peter, he dons a mask and continues his raid. Finally, he creates an entire spider suit and develops a mechanical device that can shoot strong web-like strands. But his vigilanteism attracts the attention of cops, including police captain Stacy, Gwen's father, who calls a manhunt for the masked crime fighter. But Peter still dates Gwen, revealing his secret identity to the blonde. But at Oscorp, things are getting hard for Connors. With the formula stabilized, company head Norman Osborne wants to rush into human trials. The old man is dying and hopes his research can stave off death. And when Connors refuses, his job is threatened, as is the hope of using his own research to regrow his arm. Desperate, but unwilling to use VA hospital patients as subjects, Connors injects himself. His arm grows back, but soon he starts to transform further into a raging, tall, strong lizard. His brain clouded, Connors sets up a lab in the sewer and develops a gas that he can use to turn all of Manhattan into resilient lizards, and his rampage through the city can only be stopped by Spider-Man. Spider-Man tries to get to Oscorp to stop the lizard, but is stopped by Captain Stacy and shot in the leg. Captain Stacy finds out Parker's identity and lets him go to stop the lizard, but injured, Peter can't make it. But a teamster, whose son was saved by Spider-Man in an earlier lizard attack, gets all the construction cranes in the city to line up, giving Peter an easy webline to Oscorp. He arrives, he fights the lizard, who's turned several cops also into lizards. Captain Stacy arrives with a cure devised by Gwen. Lizard kills Captain Stacy, but Peter gets the cure to disperse across the city, curing all lizards, including Connors. But in his dying declaration, Stacy asks Peter for one thing, to stay away from his daughter. Peter promises and breaks up with Gwen the day of her father's funeral. But at the end, he tells Gwen the best promises are the ones he can't keep. And she smiles as credits roll. But mid-credits, we see Connors, in jail for a biological attack on New York, visited by a shadowy figure who is likely Norman Osborne. Norman asks Curtis if he told young Parker the truth about his father. Curtis says no, and Norman laughs, setting up a sequel the producers really hope is coming into the years. So... Stuart, you brought up how we tabled the discussion about Peter's parents, and based on the trailers, I expected them to be a large part of this movie. But no, they're really just in this setup sequence at the very beginning, a little bit pre-credits and then a flashback post-credits, showing how Peter's father's research led to their going on the run and either inadvertently or directly to their death in a plane crash. You know, one
2: of the things they teach you in film school is to always look at the introductory scene. And that big themes, usually in well-told movies, are conveyed in the first moment that you have. That you can know what the movie you're going to watch is by watching what the characters do in the first scene. The very first scene is a child playing hide-and-seek, looking for his dad who is not there. This tricked me. That's exactly right. I thought for sure this was the movie I was going to watch. It was the movie I wanted to watch. It is still the movie I wanted to watch at the end. I can't believe that this is a non-issue.
0: Yeah, my whole take, seeing the previews and the things I collected on the internet reading about the film, this was about Peter discovering the secret about his father or his parents. And it's set up in the beginning. we got hide-and-seek. He's looking for his dad. There's some mysterious documents they go in hiding and now i gotta wait till the next movie as you said army we'll learn about the secret in that hopeful sequel based on this post credit scene you're right Stuart. they set something up that doesn't play out through the entire film
3: i think you pegged it jacob their plan on this being not the story of the movie but the story of the series the trilogy because this movie does begin Peter's search for his father and Peter's discovery and that end credit sequence tells us the next movie will continue that story. So, Stuart, I think you're dead on. It's just not what you got in this movie because they took some cues from their big brothers at Marvel. They didn't make one movie they set up a universe.
2: This is where I know that television is ruining films now. After Prometheus and this, the whole idea of, oh, we'll tell you next time, tune in next week, is a real TV mentality that has seeped into the franchise world. And now, people don't feel pressured to actually tell the stories they've been promising in a self-contained two-hour movie. It infuriated me in Prometheus, and I'm pissed here, too. It's not a great realization. At some point, Sally Field has some line about Secrets have a cost, and apparently it's not $19 plus concessions, because I <laughs> paid that to sit in a LIMAX theater and not find out what this movie is about.
0: Furthermore, I'm watching this. How is this going to set itself apart from the Raimi films? Fine, retell the origin, but add another layer. And I thought they were going to do that with the parents, the secret behind the parents. No, you, you tease me. You're a tease. Uh, you're right, Stuart. You got 20 bucks out of me, and you're hoping in another couple of years you'll get another 20 bucks out of me.
3: I think I got everything I needed out of this. I think they're trying to play coy, but I don't think there's anything not told here. Truthfully, I think that they robbed, of all possible sources, Ang Lee's Hulk. What I think they are telling us here is Peter's father experimented on himself... It passed genes to the sun. Peter was not transformed by just a spider bite. The spider bite, much like Eric Bana's exposure to radiation, activated something already in him due to the mad scientist whims of the father. I think that will be made explicit in the next film. I think it's told here. It's
0: just not the theme of the movie here,
3: but there's no mystery left to them for me.
0: Well, I didn't get that at all, Arnie, so I'll be surprised if that's what happens. I didn't get a bigger conspiracy a la Ang Lee.
2: Well, here's what we know. We do know that when the child goes in for hide-and-seek into the office, he sees a spider under glass. He sees the same files he will see being passed around ten years later in the laboratory of Oscorp. And we do know, eventually, when he talks to Connors, that it was his dad's responsibility to create these spiders. So, yes... Something about the parents is related to the spider that bites Peter Parker. I agree with you, Arnie. That's probably where they're headed. But even if that's the case, there's a whole mystery as to their fake death. You know, he Internet researches and finds out that they were allegedly killed in a plane crash. But clearly, when you cast someone like Campbell Scott, you're going to ask them back To play it in future movies where were they I really thought that it had to be a reunion I really thought that we would get some
3: clues as to at least where they were in the world I think that yes they will come back in future sequels I do think they're dead but they don't have to be I thought that they did die in a plane crash if you go back to the amazing Spider-Man comics Peter's parents died in a plane crash they were dead They were actually spies for S.H.I.E.L.D. Oh. Who did missions against the Red Skull. Okay. Red Skull had doubles of them pretend to be alive and come back to see Peter.
0: Real life decoys as we saw (laughs) And one of your favorites, Stuart, the <laughs> oh. David Hasselhoff's Nick Fury. <laughs> and here I was thinking of
2: Sam Jackson. Yeah, repressing that. But I was wondering, there's no way that they're going to work these plot strands into future Marvel movies. It's not like Campbell Scott can pop up and say Captain America 2 because this is a Columbia movie, right? That it's not Marvel proper. Correct. Okay, so whatever we're going to learn about this Spider-Man's origin will only be in the Spider-Man movie.
3: Maybe if they do a third Ghost Rider film, they could cross it over.
0: (laughs) That would blow my mind if we got dueling Marvel universes (laughs) from the different studios and the properties they own. Wow.
2: Well, all right. So let's stay focused with the origin story that's here. It's not coming in any of the next couple Marvel movies that we're going to get next year. Okay. So, yes, it's a mystery. It's the guiding principle for the story. And I have
3: to just bide my time with, well, what we've kind of already seen before. Andrew Garfield as Peter Parker. Now... I think the theme of this podcast is Arnie's an old fuddy-duddy. Because growing up, Peter Parker was a science nerd who wore glasses and a tie to high school. That's how we knew he was a nerd. We kind of got that exact same thing, slightly modernized, but really mostly unchanged with Raimi's film. Nerds are cool now, right? I mean, they hack the internet, they hack the FBI... They play video games. Nerd culture is in right now. You still have the jock culture, but it's not like a nerd who's into computers and science would have no friends in high school. So they have to go a different way with this Peter Parker. And Arnie takes a deep breath and has to go, yes, for modern times... This is more realistic and more relatable
0: to how young people are. I liked this Peter Parker more than the Tobey Maguire one. He's kind of this emo, geek, loner. It makes sense for me in 2012, this is how Peter Parker would be. He wouldn't be wearing the glasses, and he wouldn't be that 60s nerds from the comics that you like, Arnie. You know, if you're going to have a hacker or or, or all those things you said, I think this would be more of that vision.
2: You're exactly right. The geeking of American culture has already happened. No one would accept the fact that he's alone because he's a geek. He's a loner, and that's what he is. He's defined not by his nerdiness, but by his inability to really be socially connected. He has no place in school. He takes pictures of other clubs, but he belongs to no club of his own. Now, Andrew Garfield, I was really excited for this casting because I've liked him in a lot of small movies up to this point. He actually stole the show of the movie that was Heath Ledger's last performance. I don't know if you saw Terry Gilliam's The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, but it was the last movie Heath Ledger ever made, and they got everyone in there, Johnny Depp, Colin Farrell, and the person that I walked away going, that guy is great, is Andrew Garfield, and of course Carney, you and I saw him in Social Network when we reviewed that two years ago. I've seen him in other little things. I thought he was a perfect choice. He's geeky and awkward. He's got a kind of lean physique that's different. He's not built, but he's wiry. And I just feel like, yeah, this will take it in a different direction. It's a new concept for Spider-Man. And I was very excited. That said, I don't know that I am totally in love with What happens here in this movie, but I'm going to probably fault the director
3: more than Garfield. But the performance, eh, it kind of got on my nerves after a while. Garfield, as you mentioned, we reviewed him in Social Network. It's all I know him from, but I really like him in that I read a list online of like the top 25 people in Hollywood that they claim are attractive and aren't, and he was number one. And I kind of see that, especially in this movie. I look at him, and I almost expect him to be Bugman rather than Spider-Man. He just is this weird aesthetic and his weird way of moving that comes across more creepy than anything else.
2: I was thinking a lot about Evil Ed from Fright Night, quite
3: frankly. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of what I get off of him. And so, to me... That's a bit of a problem, and it comes through in certain scenes. I saw him at Comic-Con last year when they premiered the footage, and he talked about being a Spider-Man fan. I have to say he does an admirable job of covering up his original accent, being from England, but I was very open to him being Spider-Man. And then as the movie went on, I became a little more lukewarm. I'm now very open to him being Peter Parker. But not so much Spider-Man.
2: There's little ticks and things that he does that really, after a while, start to get to me. I mean, you know what Hugh Grant did to stammering? He does with head shaking.
0: I did like... Garfield's performance more at the beginning. He was kind of jittery and nervous and he really sold that social awkwardness. It worked initially. At some point, I would like to see the confidence that Spider-Man has transferred to Parker and he's not so jittery, but I like that. It helped me sell the character at the beginning.
2: Agreed. It makes a strong first impression as an awkward teenager. Not a nerd per se, but a loner skater who's just kind of off doing his own thing. My theory on this really is that Garfield is giving the director what he wants. Now, Now, do you guys know Mark Webb? Did you see his first film, 500 Days of Summer?
3: Yes. How could I not? I saw it as a lead up to Amazing Spider-Man because I wanted to know this guy. I wanted to know what makes somebody see this quirky indie comedy and go, that's the man for (laughs) (laughs) Spider-Man. And having watched 500 Days of Summer, I still don't get it. I find the movie to be a little bit overrated, but it was enjoyable. But nothing about it says action. I can see a lot of parallels, though, between what's done in that movie.
0: Yeah, I've seen 500 Days of Summer. I don't get what all the hurrah was for it. But yeah, kind of a weird choice to get that director and bring him over to your summer blockbuster. I'm not sure what they saw there.
2: I think why you would hire Mark Webb is that you want to bring the romance to full bloom. That if you're going to bring him into Spider-Man, he's going to suddenly make the drama the centerpiece. That it's really going to be about the character relationships. That it's going to feel more like say anything than it is Sam Raimi. You know, this was a man that Really, I'm going to credit him with foisting Zoe Deschanel on The American Populace. Now, she's super huge now because she's on a TV show being the quirky girl. I feel like that it was started really in that movie. And I feel like he's trying to do the same kind of quirky, cute with Andrew Garfield here. And someone should have told him somewhere in the middle of the movie, you're making a Spider-Man movie. And <laughs> lay off on some of the ticks.
3: Yeah, because, well, Zoe Deschanel, I don't know, she always kind of comes off as quirky to me. I first saw her in Elf. And I just see her carrying the same shtick all the way to television.
2: Oh, absolutely. I'm not saying he created it for her. I'm saying he
3: popularized the idea that she is the ideal woman in that movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. Here, maybe it's because it's a guy, but it just comes off a little bit creepy. <laughs> it comes off a little, do you want some candy, little boy?
2: <laughs> you know what I wanted <laughs> from him? Later, when he puts on the suit, he's going to get all smart mouth and funny, I wanted to see some of these early scenes. When he takes on Flash, I wanted him to mouth off. I wanted to see him not just stand up for the little guy. I wanted him to say crap because I felt like it would be within the character to feel like he could get away with saying stuff that was provocative.
0: And I don't think they do that because that was spider man shtick. He's a nerd in real life, but when he puts on the mask, he becomes this other person. Now, with the way they play Peter Parker here, I don't think you're wrong, Stuart. I definitely see the Garfield Parker as being more mouthy than the traditional comic book version.
3: I like the fact that it's the mask that frees Peter to do it. We talked about it before... It's this alternate persona the mask frees him to be. So I don't mind not seeing that in Peter. When we get to Spider-Man, we'll see if I like what they do with it. But in these early scenes, I like Peter enough. I find him a realistic portrayal of the outcast... The fact that he stands up to Flash at all might be unrealistic. I almost would have preferred him to be so passive, so weak that he doesn't, but it shows he's a good person who always stands up for the right, which helps explain why later on he'd become a superhero.
2: And it gets him talking to Gwen, let's face it. They want to introduce the romance and early.
3: Before he's Spider-Man, he's in love with Gwen, Stacy. Emma Stone, another hot property I've seen her in a lot more than I've seen Andrew Garfield in. Superbad, Zombieland, Easy A, I even saw just because she was in it. It did not get me to go see The Help. I did see The Help. (laughs) I think
2: that's the only one I've seen. (laughs) No, I saw Superbad, too. I like her. She's one of those that I like her more than the movies I've seen her in. I do feel like, like Garfield, she has a real star on the rise presence. That one day, she's going to be huge, and maybe this is going to be the project that gets her there. I can see why you'd cast her. She's absolutely adorable.
0: Yeah, I've always enjoyed her and what I've seen her in. I always get this vibe off of her, like she's Lindsay Lohan, if Lindsay Lohan didn't become Lindsay Lohan. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> She's the successful version of that. But I've always enjoyed her. She's always added to the films I've seen her in. She's never taken away or distracted me from them.
3: I always felt... Much like Zoe Deschanel, she kind of was one note, just had this brazen Emma Stone performance in every movie I've seen her in. But here, I think she really delved into something else, being the bland love interest.
2: (laughs) You think bland? I'm going to credit her with having the best relationship on screen. That I feel like the best scenes in this movie are between Garfield and her.
3: And I don't know that they should be, but they are. Oh, don't get me wrong, the two have great chemistry... I buy their love story, I buy their affection for each other. When I say bland, I'm referring to the character, and that she doesn't bring her usual brazen self. Instead, you get this, we talked about it with the last Gwen Stacy, Bryce Dallas Howard. She's the super attractive and super smart scientist, everything, kind of a Mary Sue type.
0: Yeah, I'm going to side with you on this, Artie. I like the relationship. I love this relationship. It's the strongest relationship I've seen in the Spider-Man film. But she's 17 and running the internship at Oscorp? <laughs> okay. I'm calling bullcrap on this. That graded on me. They're in high school by name only. They
3: should be college students doing everything done here.
0: Well, that's one of my problems with this film is it reminds me of your typical teen comedy where there's never any adults it's teenagers not acting like teenagers doing adult things because that's what teenagers want to see on the screen they want to see them being portrayed as adults and not having the authority figures around them and that hurts this i want to see this play out as more of a high school drama and not just teenagers doing adult stuff
3: and not just portrayed as adults but portrayed by adults i mean i was getting a definite jason Priestley, shannon doherty vibe off the age of these actors
2: really? I buy them in high school. It works for me. The casting works. But I'm going to side with both of you in that they shouldn't have moved them out of high school. The idea that for half the day she isn't in the school but working at Oscorp leading tours and such that was a choice of convenience to help the plot that they were going to tell. It does not make sense for the character. Uh, But I was refreshed at the idea that she was smart. Having been familiar with Spider-Man only with his relationship with Mary Jane really. It really feels like a different character this time. I didn't get a read on Gwen Stacy in Spider-Man 3. She was a blank to me, but here I understand who
3: she is, and she feels refreshingly different from Mary Jane. And here, this is actually, if you just put them in college, very true to the comic book incarnation. In the comic books, Gwen Stacy was introduced before Mary Jane. She was a smart science student, a good counterpart to Peter Parker, who was interested in Peter Parker for his brains and everything. And they ended up dating. I mean, of course, there were some complications. She dated Flash first, and she even dated Harry first, but they ended up dating, and it kind of became a thing similar to what they did with Harry in the last movie. Her father does die in a battle between Spider-Man and Doc Ock, and Gwen doesn't know Peter is Spider-Man, and Gwen blames Spider-Man for the death, and loves Peter, but wants Spider-Man dead. So here, this portrayal, far more in line with the comic book incarnation, and knowing what I know about the comic book incarnation, knowing that they're setting up Harry Osborn, I wonder if Emma Stone's going to survive this saga. Uh,
2: We'll get there, but even I, the comic newbie, knew she was doomed, doomed, doomed by the end of this movie when they make the choice they do. We'll get there.
3: (laughs) Peter does have some other relationships, Aunt May and Uncle Ben. I went on the record saying last time I didn't think the actors chosen were right for those roles. Cliff Robertson kind of grew on me, but they just didn't seem right. And coming in, I was like, oh, God, Sally Field, Gidget, she's way too young. And oh, boy, Martin Sheen, really? Apocalypse Now? Well, it just turns out my TV's stuck in the 60s and 70s because they aged a lot. Yes. How was
0: the 3D effect of Martin Sheen's dentures sticking out
2: the whole time? Terrifying. Absolutely horrifying. It was a relief when he was shot so that I knew I wasn't going to have to look at
3: them anymore. Is that what it was, dentures? Because something was up. It had to be. It was so distracting. It was. He and his son both have false teeth? Yes, they
2: do. He probably recommended the uh, dentist. It's quite something. (laughs) But I like these guys in general. I think that they are likable stars that have had long histories playing people that you connect with on screen. This was a good choice. They're ready in their career at this point. They don't seem old and fuddy the way that we thought of old fuddy people being 20, 30 years ago when we were
3: in high school, Arnie. But they work for this day. I don't know. I think Uncle Ben is old and fuddy in my thirty years ago thinking of old and fuddy here. I think Sheen portrays it right.
0: Yeah, this is where I guess a departure from the comics that doesn't work for me. Maybe I'm bringing too much baggage of what I think of Aunt May. Uncle Ben here, Martin Sheen, he worked fine. That fit the picture. But Sally Field, I never bought her as Aunt May. Maybe she just wasn't active enough in this film. So much of it seemed to be about Ben and his speeches. And she's just in the background, you know, handing out shopping lists most of the time.
3: Well, admittedly, she never has an illness where Peter has to run her her medicine. She is a non-entity for most of this film. She's a very passive presence when Ben and Peter get in a fight because Peter didn't pick her up from work. She's the one, like, don't make a big deal out of it. The whole time, she's just trying to be a peacemaker. But that said... I buy her as Aunt May, and it's mostly the voice. And I don't know if it's an affectation or if there's something that happens to everybody when they reach a certain age and their voice just clicks and now they have the old person voice. (laughs) She has the old woman voice here. I wish they had more to do here. I mean, being
2: familiar with the other movies, I know that Ben's greatest role is to be the martyr and the inspiration for Peter. And so, unfortunately, this first hour is just waiting for the vultures to swoop in and to take care of him. John Malkovich is coming? (laughs) No, but it really does feel like this is just waiting to die at this point. Unfortunately, I don't think that he's going to do anything of interest until that, because that's the only thing that really defines him as a character. Sally Field even less so, exactly. She is the person that is waiting for him to come home, that is concerned that he's in trouble,
3: but who is doing nothing about it. I had heard that this entire movie changed the origin of Spider-Man and with the trailers about the parents and everything I'd seen in the trailers and knowing that they wanted to depart from what Raimi did, I honestly wasn't sure if they'd kill Uncle Ben. I didn't know what they'd do if they left him alive, but by hiring Martin Sheen, I honestly thought he might survive this movie going in. I was pretty spoiler free except for like the 25 minutes of footage they released, but the stuff I saw never said death of Uncle Ben. So I was not just sitting around waiting for him to die. I liked his performance here. I liked how he was the catalyst that got Peter and Gwen together. He makes everything happen the first hour of this movie. He brings Peter to the leak that finds the file that leads Peter to Oscorp. He goes to the school and goes, you're on his computer that leads Peter and Gwen to go out on their first date. He is a great character here. I really like him.
0: Is he really in the first hour of this film? Yes. Oh, I just like the tightness of that first Raimi film. And fine, you're going to tell things differently here. I'll go with that. But I still want it tight. I still want an efficient script. I don't want it to feel like it's lagging along. And I'm not surprised that he was in the first hour of this two-hour movie. He sticks around for a while and and everything kind of just lazily goes by here. It's actually two hours and fifteen minutes and I was looking at my clock.
2: Now, I don't think it's very healthy to compare this to Ray me too much. It's, it's almost unfair. They were given the task of having to follow up a really great origin story. I'm not expecting it to be as good, and guess what? It isn't. It's slower. It's not as compelling. It feels familiar. I'm just not invested the same way. What I am doing is biding my time until they can be freed of this origin story. If it takes an hour, okay, fine. But I am waiting for this first hour for them to get through this so I can get to the movie that I I wanted to see
3: the thing that is new. I went ahead and I did see this twice for this review because I had to watch it once completely pure and have my reaction. But I had to go in a second time and overly intellectualize it and wonder what would this movie be in an alternate universe where Raimi had never made three films? Mm hmm. The Shadow of Raimi is what damns this movie, because I think if we weren't comparing it every moment of this first hour to, well, Raimi did this, well, Raimi did this, if we didn't have that one-for-one comparison that is so recent, this film would stand up far better than I think it does to those of us who saw Spider-Man 1 two weeks ago. Maybe.
0: I don't know, because the speeches here, when Uncle Ben talks, there's something I miss about the tightness of with great power comes great responsibility. Boom, you're done, move on. And that's not just Raimi. Maybe I'm bringing it in from the comic books too, but I want the movie to move along, and this movie does not want to move along. It wants to have speech after speech after speech after speech, and just, damn it, get the suit on and do something.
3: I think it does move fast. Now, you mentioned the speeches. It's almost like... There was a rule. You may not say these words with great power come great responsibility. It was a rule, apparently, in the writers' room. You have to say everything around it, but don't say those words, even though they were in the original Spider-Man comic and hundreds of others since.
2: Yeah, they kind of get something in there about action and responsibility, and it's the thing that gets Peter to go out at night and say, well, my dad wasn't responsible for me, and breaks the door glass and all of that. It sets up... The death scene that that comes near the hour mark.
3: But I found that this movie lingered with the Peter Parker, Gwen Stacy scenes in the first hour and the human relationships. But the transformation, my God, it's like the movie just starts. He finds a file, Googles Kurt Connors and is sneaking into the lab. I couldn't believe how
0: quick he was bitten. Whoa, 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 whoa. He doesn't Google. He beans. I'm oh, questioning yes. how smart Peter is at this point if he's using being over Google. And while
2: we're on the subject of technology, Columbia Pictures put this movie out. I think the stars of this are Sony phones. Do you notice how many people are flashing <laughs> Sony technology? Oh, yeah. You know, I know y'all got to work in your product placement. And this is an expensive movie. It's prime real estate to advertise, but it got annoying. It really got annoying how oftentimes they flash the Sony phones.
0: What's funny is they're using the latest Sony cell phone but peter's still using a film camera sony's got a digital camera out there don't they I thought that was an interesting
2: choice and I think that was made for character. I'm guessing that that is just a piece of nostalgia. They don't set it up but I took that to mean that that had been a camera that had been given to him by his father and that maybe he remained attached to it because it was a memento. And yeah, this kid would be totally digital at this point. It's ridiculous to think that he would have an old film camera. But I I went with it because he is the outsider. He is different and he isn't Trying to fit in,
3: I think of him as the type who would be sitting around playing vinyl records because it's cooler and he likes to be that kind of rebellious punk type of attitude. So vinyl records, film cameras, it fit the character the way Garfield portrayed him. Plus, I thought they were going for that, again, timeless sort of thing. If he was holding the latest Sony digital, it wouldn't have made this film feel as timeless as everything except the product placements do make it feel. There's not late model cars or anything in here that really date this movie as 2012. Right. But he does sneak into Oscorp in a very amusing scene. The humor in this movie, in these early scenes, is working for me quite a bit. I love it when the actual intern is <laughs> screaming Spanish and kicked out, and Peter sneaks in, and we are introduced to Kurt Connors, Rise Ivans, who, coincidentally enough, was also kicked out of Comic-Con for Drunken and disorderly. <laughs> And should have been kicked out of this movie. The worst thing about Amazing Spider-Man,
2: by far, hands down, is this performance. Really? Okay. I can't stand this character. Did he just not want to be there? Here is a character actor who is known for going big. He does big physical performances. I'm thinking of Notting Hill or that movie he did with Michelle Gondry. We've seen him do an awful villain in Hannibal Rising, Arnie. I I think of him as going over the top and maybe he wanted to thwart expectations here. I don't think he does one thing in this movie. I don't think he gives a facial expression. I don't think he does anything to endear us to him. It is a completely blank as a performance and it's unfortunate because this relationship that he's forging with Peter should be just as alive as the Gwen Stacy Parker romance.
3: I have to wonder if he's downplaying because he's trying to cover up that accent. I know him primarily from... Notting Hill. We did see him in Hannibal Rising. This is the third thing I've seen him in. And I just, I got the impression his entire delivery was based around hiding an American accent when I would have been perfectly fine with him being a foreign Dr. Kirk Connors. Was he trying to hide it? Because
0: I took him as foreign the whole time. I kept hearing that accent come out.
2: I just don't like the guy like I mean there's just something about when he walks in I don't buy him as a scientist you know they make such a big deal about him missing a right arm if you're surrounded by scientists in the day and age of prosthetics I would think they would have that already solved the idea that he's waiting for a cross-species cure instead of robotics didn't make any sense to me anytime
3: Connors is on screen the movie is running at a deficit for me He seems like a guy with a chip on his shoulder. He's introduced to a bunch of interns. He comes out with his nubbin sticking out and (laughs) goes, I'm a southpaw. His first line is not, I'm a brilliant scientist, but I've lost an arm. Right. All he talks about is his own problems. This guy has problems. Now, not having a prosthetic didn't bother me. I know enough about prosthetics to know that depending on the injury and everything, we don't know how he lost his arm. Maybe the best he could have had was a little hook, but... I was fine with him. Again, this is very true to the comics where the character was a wartime surgeon who lost an arm and became obsessed with trying to grow his own arm back using lizard DNA. So I went with that. But the way the character is introduced, I'm like, it reminded me of a stand up comedian who would go up on stage and the first thing they do is rip themselves apart so that nobody else can. And then they move on to their real material. <laughs>
2: I hear what you're saying. They make such a big deal early about the arm I mean it seemed like they didn't need to go into the stuff later about cutting off the lizard's tail because it was just so there. I was like alright well obviously this guy's going to become the lizard because he's missing his tail and he wants to regenerate I mean I feel like it does define the character. They didn't think about the character beyond the missing arm and this guy knew his dad. There's no conversations they have about that relationship. I can't believe that at no point Peter does ask more questions about why do you think my dad is gone, or how did you work with him, and it was so disappointing how this played out.
0: Yeah, again, Peter, supposed to be super smart. Oh, by the way, here's the, what is it called, double-triple decay logarithm for free. I'll just give it to you. I don't want any information about my dad, I don't want any compensation, it's just, hey, you worked with my dad, so I'm going to help you out. No, 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 no.
3: Here's the thing. At this point, Peter was bitten by the spider, and we... Had him discovering his powers on the subway scene. A very amusing scene, too. No,
0: it's, Arnie, amusing? Yeah. This scene makes no sense to me. I'm sitting here watching it. Here's a guy that in a matter of seconds, they're going to show us that he has super powerful spidey senses. A guy comes up and, like, lays a bottle on his forehead. I don't know. I've only been to New York a couple times. Maybe that's a common occurrence if you fall asleep (laughs) on subways. It just seems like we need to force an action scene because... This movie's going pretty slow so far, so we're going to have some guy set a bottle on his head. And it's not the bottle going on his head that wakes him up. It's a little drip of condensation that finally wakes him up. Like, it just seems so forced to me.
2: The whole bite and getting through the powers and all of that feels like rapid montage that no one is taking joy in. And any time that they're showing what should be a wondrous transformation, it just feels played for spastic
3: laughs. But... He's suddenly worried, what's going to happen to him? Is he going to die? Is there going to be decay? He goes to Connors, not to help him out, not to find out about his dad. He goes to Connors to find out, am I dying? And can I be saved? Am I going to turn into a big spider? Am I just going to keel over? What's going to happen to me? And the key to that is in the research his father and Connors were doing. And so when Connors says... I'm stumped on this problem. I take it as Peter offering it up and even taking part to find out what the hell is happening to me and can I be saved?
2: What is happening to him? What do we know about the spiders? What can you explain to me? Because I got nothing out of the blue room that's spinning all of the little arachnids. I I had no idea what was going on there.
0: I don't want to keep comparing this to Raimi, but Raimi spends a few seconds on a spider bite. We see little things in the background. These are all genetic altered spiders. Here, what does happen? It's a big, long scene about rotating spiders. I don't know what's going on. He sneaks in because he can tell it's a secret
3: room and he wants to find out more about his father's research. He notices the double O bit that was in the file. So he's trying to find out more about his father's work as father was working on these spiders, the spiders that are in there. Now, it's later said in the film that Peter's dad broke ethical guidelines and did human testing. So the way I read all of this together is Peter's father either tested on Peter or tested on himself and passed it on genetically to Peter and the spider bite activates in Peter the change. Peter mm. is destined to become the Spider-Man. It's different completely than the actual Spider-Man story from the comics and Raimi's film where it's just happenstance. The spider happened to bite him. The spider could have bitten anyone. Now it's a combination. He becomes special because of his father.
0: But this room specifically, are these genetically altered spiders? Why is it rotating? Why are they crawling around? Like, are these just regular spiders and they're watching them spin webs? They
3: didn't go into specific technobabble about them. I took it as these were special bred spiders and maybe hybrid spiders and things like that.
2: What I take it to mean is that this strain of spider are the descendants of what Campbell Scott created, that they keep them special in a room because they don't know what else to do with them, and they allow them to continue the experiments, and I just wish that I knew that what they had been working on. You know, again, for me, what could be offered here that is new and fresh and exciting is the science. I'm really cool with the idea that this could be a movie where they spend a lot of time in the lab, and you know, that we have geeks as this stars that both Gwen and Peter are science geeks. They're smart kids. They're here. They understand the research. I want to understand it with them. I wanted to know these things. It was very frustrating when they kind of skim over this stuff and went, oh, you know, science, whatever. Spinning room, you pull a strand, bite, whatever. It just felt like, wow, you don't care about what I care about.
3: I was wondering when he pulls that strand. I'm like, So does he spin webs from the back of his neck and then he needs mechanical web shooters also? I couldn't figure out what that was. Right. The spider remains
2: attached to him from the bite. There's like a webbing. It's like it's creating a web out of the back of his neck and he finds it, you know, later (laughs) when he's looking in the mirror. I agree. If he is genetically changed, should they have gone with the non-organic web shooters?
3: And it was something he kind of stole from Oscorp anyway. It was Oscorp technology that allows him to have the web shooters that shoot. I was fine. Mechanical web shooters, biological web shooters, I'm not going to get hung up on it.
0: I actually like these mechanical web shooters except I thought he did steal them at first but then they show like a FedEx box and he's watching a internet video about how you could buy this super sticky string to pull airplanes. Like, did he just order this from Oscorp? I don't know. But what I liked about mechanical shooters is, this was a staple in the comics, is that he eventually runs out and he has to use his brains. He can't just spin webs anymore. And I like, okay, they're totally going to set that up. It never pays off. Never happens. But that's one reason I was excited for this, because every superhero, they have to have their kryptonite. They have to have their weakness. Something that's going to run out or something that can deplete them of their power. And so that's why I was excited about the idea of the mechanical web shooters. Never pays off. For
2: me. I wanted to see how they work. I wanted to see exactly that. Where does he store the fluid? When does it run out? I mean, I wanted them to spend time on this kind of stuff. The stuff that Raimi skipped over, here's your opportunity to fill in a gap, a big gap, and make it really your own. I mean, these are the opportunities being given to make you create your standalone Spider-Man movie and they don't spend any more time on it than Raimi did. They're just, it's a wacky montage and we're done, you know, break up the bathroom and you know, a little couple sticky finger jokes
3: and it's over. We want Ben dead. I was fine with these power discovery things. I got a little bit of a footloose flashback when he's kind of dancing around the
0: warehouse. What was the point of that scene? Like that was just like, Hey kids, we're going to have a skating montage. I think that's it. Yep. Oh, okay. That was the point of it. Uh Uh-huh. Got
2: to get that Coldplay song in there. I think it was Coldplay.
3: (laughs) But again, if you compare it to Raimi's, I felt like it wasn't doing it as well. But if you take it as its own, I'm entertained. I like it when he's balancing on one finger. I like it when he's learning his powers. No. I like his version of the scream. I like his performance here. It's adequate. It is entertaining.
2: There's nothing worse than watching someone being amazed at some physical act that they're doing that we can tell is blue screen. That I'm standing on top of the building on my finger. No, that was a hokey moment. It was a a rare moment where the specs don't look right. And I just felt like that's painful to watch an actor be so amazed at abilities we can see aren't real.
0: Here's my problem. I don't mind seeing the discovery of the powers. I think that's a necessary scene. You need to see him come into his own. But I don't need to see him tear up the bathroom and then smash his alarm clock and rip the door apart and then go skateboarding and then swing from chains and then do a handstand on a building. Tighten it up. I don't need this to go on for this long. Let's get to the point. Let's move it along. I get that after a couple of scenes. Two-hour, 20-minute movie. I felt every minute of this.
2: You were saying that you're entertained. I, Like I said, I'm not going to be grumpy about this. I was giving it the hour. I was like, get me to Ben's death, and then I will be engaged. But no, I didn't care about anything that was happening in this first
3: hour. I was entertained. I did feel the length. By the time this movie was over, I felt like I saw the movie and its sequel. And the movie was Spider-Man Gets His Powers... And the sequel was Spider-Man Fights the Lizard. It feels very split down the middle. I think they could have done, with Mark Webb directing and writing, the entire movie being Spider-Man Gets His Powers. Go Unbreakable on this one. I don't care. (laughs) Make it all about him and Gwen and power discovery and end with Ben's death after two hours. I think that could have worked with the actors that are here and the relationships that are defined. In certain ways, I agree. It feels like it's not tight enough. But that's not tight enough given that they're trying to tell two stories in one movie. By the same token, I feel some of this is very rushed. We don't know what that spider was. We don't Know all about the research. It felt like so much was going on. There's a scene where Peter gets back at Flash, which the score on this by James Horner, too. Sometimes it's great, but sometimes when it's bad, it's really obnoxious.
2: Yeah. It was Horner definitely trying to channel John Williams, and I found myself a lot writing down about how much I was not enjoying the music in certain moments.
3: The Flash scene was one of two horrible, horrible moments. I kind of like some of the other
0: stuff. But when he gets back at Flash, which to me is another discovery of power scene. I just want to put it out there. This keeps going. At this point, I took it as his powers were
3: discovered. He knew exactly what he could do. This is him with great power comes great irresponsibility. Right. This is what would happen to him. He'd become the bully if Ben didn't die.
2: It's something we all wanted. Flash was a jerk at the beginning. We want to see a scene in which he's humiliated. We asked for this. I don't mind it. I think it's appealing. We know that we shouldn't want it, and Ben shows up to tell us we don't want it. But yes, it's fun to
3: see this switcheroo. And I kind of like the Flash they did. It's, again, a 21st century jock. It's an updating of Flash for what it should be, and... I like him far better than the Flash that we got in the first series. But after this, it felt like some stuff was just rushed through. I wouldn't say it needs to be tightened up, but the pacing is off for this first hour. He humiliates Flash. Ben comes to school, says, you need to pick up Aunt May. And he, he has that thing with Gwen. The next scene, he's in a lab. I didn't think that was the same day. When he's getting home from the lab and they're like, you didn't pick up Aunt May and you said you would today. I'm like, this was all one day? Yeah. It feels compressed in ways that are uneven.
0: Yes, I'll agree, Artie. It's not that it's not tight. at Sometimes it's just, it's uneven with the pacing. And I thought this is what was going to set up the death of Ben Parker. I thought this was going to be their new twist, that Peter showed off at school, and now Ben's got to work the late shift, and Peter's got to go pick up his aunt, and Ben, you know, he's working late. Something bad's going to happen to him. I thought that was a nice way to give it a different spin. You see this unruly youth, this teenager reminded me of Most of the audience that I saw this with, I was surprised they shut up for two seconds once the film started. But here's this youth that finally gets some power, and he becomes a total jerk like all the other teenagers that already have power, the strong jocks. And Ben was going to temper him. Like I liked the way this was going, and I'm like, okay, now we're going to get to Ben's death. Then you're into a lab, and like I'm just almost confused at this point what's going on
2: every time that they're not getting to ben's death i'm confused where is this scene i'm waiting
3: for this scene one hour into the movie we get the scene ben's death i've said up till this point i'm watching everything and comparing it to Raimi's, and i know they're not going to do the wrestling scene they're not doing the robbery scene so i'm very curious how they're going to kill ben if they're going to kill ben And up until this point, I say he's taken outside the shadow of Raimi's film. Everything is adequate, and I'm amused. But the death of Uncle Ben, they are trying so hard to not do what Raimi's film did. This sucks.
2: Do they even teach
3: the lesson that they're ascribing
2: to teaching? I mean, the last time the message was clear, the great responsibility message came through. You didn't even need to articulate it in words because it was so clear what had happened. Here's what I learned from this scene. If a guy's got a gun, you let him get away with the cashier money.
0: Yes! I like what they were doing here with broad strokes, that... Peter. He's trying to buy some milk. I don't buy this whole interaction. I don't know why a clerk would turn down money because of two cents. I've been to 7-Eleven enough to know that this is indeed not the thing. He's a New Yorker, Jacob. But there's a take a penny thing. He wouldn't let him. (laughs) There's a $10 minimum to take a penny. Like, whatever. He's a New York
2: cashier. I bought everything in this scene. I was fine with the scene.
0: I'll take your word for it. I liked how played down it was. You know, as much as I enjoyed the wrestling stuff from Rainey's, I would have been shocked if we would have got a wrestling scene in this film. So I I like that they gave it a different spin by these broad strokes, but then the burglar goes running out, falls down, worst burglar ever. I think he was already intoxicated when he stole the beer. His gun falls out, and Ben goes to pick it up. Like, no, you just, like, stand aside and let this guy go. There is nothing we had seen from Ben earlier that he was going to stand up to bullies. We'd seen that from Peter. We hadn't seen that from Ben, and any common sense would say, dude has a gun. Take a picture of him visually with your eyes and describe him to the cops later. Don't get in the way.
2: Absolutely. Peter is not wrong for not intervening. Ben is wrong for thinking that he could wrestle a gun away from a thug half his age.
3: Yeah. It makes Ben seem really dumb. Peter, at that point, the thug hadn't revealed he had a gun. Peter could have said, hey, check your register, but he had no reason to. This doesn't teach me with great power comes great responsibility. This feels more like a got milk moment. And Ben dying it's not Peter's fault. It's Ben's fault, because if somebody pulls a gun on you, you go, yes, sir, sir. Would you like my wallet, sir? <laughs> you don't try to wrestle it from them. It's a terrible scene.
2: It's a mockable scene, but at least I have the scene now, and at least we can get past this. It was a relief to get through this moment.
3: I kind of hear you. It's now we can get to Spider-Man, Ben is dead, but the way it's done is so poor. The worst. It doesn't teach a lesson to me. And... It does set up, though, why Peter would become a vigilante. He becomes a vigilante not to just stop all criminals everywhere, not because he's burdened with this great power and great responsibility. He wants to get the son of a bitch who killed his uncle, and that I kind of go with.
0: You know, it's funny. A lot of people said, oh, they're they're trying to make this into the Nolan Spider-Man, and I kind of brush that off. I'm like, why? Because it's taking place at night. From what I had seen, it's still the cherry shooting out, witful dialogue Spider-Man. But yeah, this is where I got that feeling, like, we to darken him up. He's gonna be go on full on vigilante now because he saw the death of his father figure and he's gonna go out and beat up some criminals.
3: Yeah.
2: No wait a minute. Toby Maguire did the same thing. I mean they just did it a lot more
3: economically. I don't feel like it's different. This is Batman begins in more than just he becomes a vigilante because he saw his father figure killed though. This is God help me a quote realistic unquote Spider-Man. I can see how you could do that with Batman we're gonna real world his tech. But with Spider-Man, we're going to real world the fact that he can walk on walls. And when he gets in fights, he's going to have enough spider sense that he can dodge a cop shooting him from one yard away. But he's going to come home battered and bruised and bloody, just like Bruce Wayne did. They are so trying to make this Spider-Man Begins and... That doesn't fit Spider-Man. They've always tried to make Spider-Man a Batman, and I don't know why. Spider-Man is more popular than Batman globally, but they always want to try to make him the next Batman, and here it's Spider-Man begins, and it just isn't working for this film. Every time Peter comes home from his vigilante raise with new cuts and new bruises and everything, I'm like, no, he's Spider-Man. Batman's
2: the trendsetter. Batman does it first is why. Spider-Man is always trying to catch up in the movie.
0: Here's the thing with Raimi. Yes, Spider-Man goes after the guy who killed his uncle, or at least the guy we thought who who killed Uncle Ben until we got to that third film. He dies. Spider-Man kind of scares him. He, He falls to his death. And then Peter realizes great power comes great responsibility, and he starts using his powers for good. At this point, this character has not learned anything about responsibility. He's learned a lot about vengeance, and we see it night after night after night after night. This is not a character that's going to teach the youth about becoming responsible.
2: And to your point, when the muggers are attacking a woman and he goes to, quote unquote, rescue her, she ends up screaming from help from him. That kid's the freak. It is kind of scary to see him in these early scenes use his brand of justice.
0: I don't think it fits the character, but I do like the action of it. Oh,
2: I love parkour stuff. I wish they had done more of this. I know that we'll be getting into the special effects shots soon and talking about the swinging and all of that. But if this had just been largely him jumping across buildings and using stuntmen and not CGI, I
3: would have loved it. I think it's the best stuff. I like this stuff quite a bit. To your point, Jacob, given that... Peter never finds the guy who killed Uncle Ben. Don't you wonder if he's going to become Sandman in the future?
0: Yeah, and that's a problem for me. Like, again, we spend so much time. I'm going to get the guy with the star tattoo. I'm going to get the one-armed man, which I guess is another part of this film, actually. (laughs) But it never pays off. And I was thinking the same thing, Arnie. I'm like, at least they opened it up to retcon when they bring Sandman back. When I first watched this movie,
3: and we see Peter go out, and he sees that mugging with that girl. And I'm like, wait a second. How the hell did he find the guy? That seems all of Manhattan, he finds the guy. And then it turned out it wasn't the guy, and he just keeps going after long, blonde-haired thugs. And I'm like, okay, well, all right, I'm going with that. He's now going through all this. He even gets the car robber and everything. But the fact that he never finds Uncle Ben's killer, again, realistic... But unsatisfying. It's TV thinking. You
2: referenced The Fugitive, that TV series where the whole premise was about, you know, how many seasons do I chase the same person? We're expected to believe that we're not going to get this person apprehended until they've finished the whole trilogy and that irritates me. I really feel like we've gotten beyond the idea that you need to explain things in a movie. It's not enough anymore. You have to dribble it out movie after movie until we lose interest apparently. Well, I've already lost interest. I'm mad that they don't do this stuff.
3: And during all this, because somebody yells, I saw your face, he decides he needs a mask, and then he works it into the full costume. This costume has caused a lot of controversy online in the pre-release photos. People hate it. People love it. I went with it. It's Spider-Man. I, it's an, it's cool looking.
0: I do like how he realized the idea of getting a mask. And you know, the guy yells, I saw your face, but he falls into a wrestling ring. I thought that was a nice nod to his original origin with wrestling and he sees a Lucador. I love Lucador. So yeah, throw on a mask. But then was there a point where he decided he needed a spandex suit? You spend all this time on montages of him bu- building mechanical webs and popping out sunglass lenses and sewing this mask. And then he just goes online and buys a suit. Huh? I love the suit. It's very sporty looking, so I guess it looks like something you might see in the Olympics. The feet of it almost do look like running shoes, tennis shoes. I I love the look of it, but he bought some spandex, screen printed a spider on it, and he's done. I want to go back to Raimi and just don't give me an explanation then, if that's your explanation.
2: I don't think it's ever going to sit well with me. I'm fine with how they... Get us to the suit. I wanted to spend more time, as you're pointing out, this is all being done in montage. This was the stuff I felt like we should linger on. These were the moments that were important. This is the kind of stuff they already did in montage in Raimi's movie. This is an opportunity missed. Show us building the web shooter. Show us the light bulb as it clicks on when he realizes, I need more than a mask. Show us these details. Otherwise, you aren't doing Nolan, because Nolan always
3: asks why, and he gives you an answer. And this movie won't. I thought we were shown it. When he's swinging the chains, we see in Garfield's face the, aha, I need to be able to swing through the city like that. And we get to see him watching the Oscorp little cartridges, which we saw a glimpse of earlier in the film, and he developed the own web thing. I thought I might have missed it when they said that he wants a spandex outfit. I think he was just looking for something to increase mobility because he's looking at all these various sports figures and what they wear, and it's always spandex. I thought we got a lot of why, but it was all in montage and very glossed over. Unlike you guys, I don't want a whole lot of... Scenes of him getting caught up in his own coat and thus needing a spandex outfit, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
2: I don't want a lot of scenes. I want one. I want yes. to see cause and effect. You say Nolan, I say this is not Nolan. Nolan would show you cause and effect. This movie is racing through it, either because it doesn't have confidence in its own ideas or because it knows that it's already testing us with its trying running time.
3: The scene where I kind of turn on Andrew Garfield is... I believe his last vigilante scene. It's his first one in full regalia. It's the car robber scene here. I realize they're trying to make Spider-Man the quick witted full of quips kind of thing. But when he sneezes web onto the guy's crotch and he's like, oh, it's so easy. He doesn't come off as
0: quippy and funny. He comes off as a dick. Yeah, he's a bratty teenager, which they've set him up to be the entire time. I actually like this. This is one of those scenes they released before the film came out. And it was one of those scenes that said, hey, this movie might have a chance. I've said I'm not a big Spider-Man fan, but I like that scene. I wanted to see something like this. Someone having fun, not the... I'm Batman. Boy, you know, someone that's having fun being a superhero. I don't mind that, so I enjoyed the scene when I saw it before the movie came out and, it, you know, the film didn't change my opinion. I wish I got more of this, more of him being a smart ass running around.
2: I like the scene. I'm glad that it is a scene and not part of a montage, and I'd like the note that it ends on, it underlines what you're saying, Arnie. He has gone too far. After he does the crotch, he slings it over his face. The guy is choking, and he's watching the guy die, and he has to think for a moment before gives him some air holes there. It is a moment where he is learning the extent of his powers. I just don't know why he stops doing this for the rest of the movie.
0: Because the lizard shows up.
3: <laughs> that and the fact that the scene ends with him being chased by the cops, setting up a new dynamic. You mentioned him reflecting on whether or not he's going to give the guy the air. They do this a couple of times where like, I'm jokey, I'm Spider-Man and then they zoom in on his face and he like gives this creepy head turn and they focus on the eye and all of a sudden it's like, alright, is Spider-Man supposed to be scary like a spider? Or is Spider-Man supposed to be jokey? It's it's totally uneven. And they did this in this scene, they do it a little bit later when he saves the kid, he's like, oh yay, you rescued a child, but I'm creepy. No, no. no. That scene was different.
0: That's him reflecting on a father and son.
3: Yes. That
2: was an emotional moment. These scenes attacking the thieves are creepy scenes. It was the kind of stuff I was asking for when I was talking about Venom, Black Suit Spider-Man last time. This was the edge that I was looking for. The things to tell me he had gone too far. I think the kid moment and seeing re- him reuniting a kid with the father, that was an important moment for him to realize that hey, he could do more than just be a vigilante. But at the end of the day, I felt like it was hard to make the jump from I'm going to do everything I can to find my uncle's killer to I'm now an altruistic superhero. It just, I feel like most of those scenes aren't in this movie.
3: But we're about an hour into the movie when he is chased by the cops and almost at the exact same time we're introduced to J. Jonah Jameson and Raimi's film, this time we get Captain Stacy, played by Dennis Leary. Seems like a natural fit. He kind of did this
2: on Rescue Me. If you ever saw the New York Fireman TV show, he's got the right
3: sass and attitude. I think this is good casting. I'm a Dennis Leary fan from way back, from No Cure for Cancer, from Demolition Man. I saw a lot of movies just because he was in them, like Operation Dumbo Drop. Mm. I'm not kidding. I would see anything with him in it. I understand he's a polarizing figure. I found out in later years, the entire No Cure for Cancer routine, he stole it from other comedians, and it's what he used to make his own fame. But I do like Rescue Me. I liked him on the job. I like his Dennis Leary Firefighter Foundation. I like the man. I like seeing him come into Spider-Man, but he has one persona, right? I mean, he's not an actor. He's Dennis Leary you're hiring him to do this and a
2: New York cop, is not a strange transplant from his New York comic. I think it works.
0: I liked him in this. I know he's been doing work for years, but what always sticks in my mind, what did he do? Like Commercials for MTV in the 90s where he's smoking and all the fat Talking about Cindy Crawford? Yes, that's my image of Dennis Leary, and so that's what I was expecting and I got that. I liked him in this. He's obviously aged and he's older, but maybe that's his one note that he could do, but
2: you wouldn't want to say something against him. You wouldn't want to have his anger turn on you. And that's why it's kind of fun when Peter gets invited to dinner and that very thing transpires.
0: Yeah, I thought that was a great scene. You know, we talk about how slowly paced or, or unevenly paced this film is, but I like some of these character moments where you get this debate at the table where Peter finds out well, we were actually trying to do a big sting on car thieves and find out who was at the head of it in this Spider-Man character rune, and you see Spider-Man clicking there oh, teenagers, we know everything and then you get that light go on, oh, maybe I don't know everything, maybe, like these moments like that, I wish there were more of them I don't know what happens in between a lot of these great scenes, but there's stuff that happens in between that I don't remember, and then are we getting great scene like this one that really stand out to me my thing with this
3: scene is so many levels first of all we never understood why jameson didn't like spider-man here it is spelled out why captain stacy doesn't like spider-man and we get that antagonistic presence it's doubly good because it's his girlfriend's father and how intimidating is a girlfriend's father especially when you're in high school And the way he stands up to the girlfriend's father and talks back feels more 20-something, which Andrew Garfield is, than high school. Usually in high school, you're more fumbling, you're more nervous, you're more reserved, even if you are Spider-Man, I would think. But the one beat of this that doesn't feel right is when Dennis Leary says, if we wanted the car thief off the street, the car thief would be off the street, and it was that whole sting Why didn't Peter say, well, then why isn't my uncle's killer off the street? Don't you want him off the street? That is the comeback to that.
0: Yeah, I agree. But to me, that is, and we're known for nitpicking, to me, that is a minor nitpick for an overall great scene. Like you said, Arnie, I like the dynamic between girlfriend, the father, and the boyfriend. It's not just that he's the boyfriend, but he's also the vigilante that his girlfriend's daughter is trying to capture. I like the layers there, so I... Totally agree. That's the right response, but I'm willing to let it go because I'm enjoying this scene right now. And the
2: scene continues. We then go on, and I'm so happy that they immediately get to the idea that Gwen is going to find out the secret. They go out to the balcony for air after things got a little too tense, and Peter can't find the words, so he just webs her and brings her into his arms. I really like the way that this plays out.
3: It's
0: very 500 Days of Summer. I think I've been on the record that I hate when superheroes reveal their identities. But, again, because this is still set in the high school Spider-Man universe, I'm willing to go with it. You know, you're this kid, you want to get the hot girl, you're going to take a risk. You know, you know this is going to impress her. We saw this in Kick-Ass when he finally reveals himself to get the chick. I'm willing to go with it for this movie. This movie's convinced me that these are actions that this Andrew Garfield, Peter Parker would take.
2: I mean, I just like the whole scenario. It Like, sort of symbolizes young love. Now she's in on the secret, and no one else in the rest of the world can understand their relationship. That's how you feel when you're 17 years old. And yeah, the fact that her dad is going to be persecuting Spider-Man, these are the relationships that really work in this movie. It's the triangle of Leary, Stone, and Garfield playing out that I really like.
3: Yeah, it's working for me, again, like you, Jacob, because he's in high school, and he doesn't have that responsibility. This is his first girlfriend. He's wanting to revel in the fact of, that he's being accepted, and the Spider-Man's a part of that, and I buy that she'd go with it being a cop's daughter. It's stated explicitly in the film later on, but I got it in the first moment when I realized the family dynamic of the cop father that, yeah, when... The father is called out to go out and stop the lizard from rampaging on the bridge, and Peter, his spider sense and hearing the police sirens makes him do the same thing, and she's left there alone. I go, yeah, I get that. The whole, I date the man who's like my father thing. And it's a cop's daughter who could understand the life of a vigilante and his need to go out there. I completely bought it and more than buying it, I liked it. But at this point, yes, we have the lizard. The whole Curtis Connor transformation has occurred because he was going to lose his job and his chance at regrowing his own arm because of Norman Osborn's impatience.
2: I thought this was a good twist. I had assumed that Connors was steering the ship and that everything was about him growing an arm again. But to learn that it was really about saving the life of Norman, this shadowy figure that we see in silhouette, he looms large at the company and yet no one has seen his face. I like that.
0: Yeah, I like we never see Norman Osborne here, but he's kind of controlling the action. He's the wizard behind the curtain moving things around. Is he played by Guy Pierce? <laughs>
3: It just feels very
0: Guy Pearce to me. It would be, I want to live longer. and This is taking place at Oscorp. And I'm like, well, where's Norman Osborn? Is he still alive? Is this this, the company? And he's passed on. He's not going to be in this new Spider-Man universe. So I like that they address that. And we don't see him, but he is a shadowy figure. So when he becomes the Green Goblin, I'm assuming in the next film, that's been set up here. That he's got not the most benevolent notions here. He's he's pushing scientific exploration out just so he can live long.
2: And uh, he must be responsible for the parents' disappearance slash death in some way as well. I mean, I now see him as the true villain. I don't think Connors is a villain. He is a scientist that, in order to protect innocent human test subjects, will inject himself. It isn't just because he wants to grow his arm back, although he's happy to see it emerge out of the goo. It is also because he's thinking about people.
0: I didn't connect that Peter's dad, Richard Parker, had... Done a human experimentation. That that little piece flew by me when I watched this film. I honestly thought that the whole raid at the beginning of the film with four-year-old Peter was still like when we find out Osborne's trying to stay alive longer, I'm like, has he been sick for thirteen years? Did he break in thirteen years ago trying to get this formula to stay alive? And that's why the Parkers went into hiding? Because now we're seeing what Osborne's willing to do to push you know, with Connors here and uh Go experiment on veterans. Like, I, I didn't get the, the deeper conspiracy that they dropped some lines about. I just thought he was this figure pushing all the action forward.
2: Anybody think that it actually could be Campbell Scott? Like, they're gonna do some kind of Darth Vader-ish twist in I Am Your Father at some point?
3: Oh, I hope, hope not. I hope, hope not.
0: I got that feeling, Stuart, from the mid credits teaser at the end. They, they never show Osborne. They never show the face. I, the possibility is there. Yeah
3: any possibility is there. You know, the voice is indistinct enough. They don't know who they're going to cast or what they're going to do, I think.
2: It
0: was a distinct possibility. I'll put it that way. That came to my mind when I saw that ending scene.
2: But we finally get the lizard. Now, this is the first time this villain has been on a live-action screen here. I had seen him on the stage as an inflatable, (laughs) thanks to Julie Taymor. But I was curious to know what this creature was. I didn't know any history. I actually went back and watched the origin story from the 60s cartoon, just so I could know a little bit of something, and it doesn't really have any bearing on what we watch
3: here. But what can you guys tell me about The Lizard? I went back and I had to reread some comics, too, because when I think of The Lizard from comics, even though I've read him in so much, the iconic storyline has him as a raging beast. It was in 1990. Todd McFarlane's beginning of a new Spider-Man series just called Spider-Man and a series that later has been named Torment where the lizard is taken over by Calypso, a voodoo priestess, to attack Spider-Man and that really brought the lizard into a new age of danger and being really tough, but going back and reading his original origins, scientist lost his arm in the war, lives in the Everglades, because, you know, alligators and all that, it makes sense. Sure. And Spider-Man reads that there's a lizard creature in the Everglades and flies down there because he's Spider-Man and wants to help, and it turns out to be Kurt Connors, a scientist who was trying to regrow his arm. Kurt Connors becomes a major player in the Spider-Man universe for quite a while, for decades, being in the role like we saw him in Spider-Man 2 and Spider-Man 3, a teacher of Peter's who is who Spider-Man goes to when he needs science help. If he gives a t- blood transfusion to Aunt May and she now has radiation poisoning, Spider-Man goes to Kurt Connors. Or Spider-Man experiments on himself and now he has six arms, he goes to Kurt Connors. He's his mad scientist friend who... Sometimes it's just a mad scientist, and sometimes, oops, in the middle of all this other stuff, he's the lizard again, and he is a danger to his wife and child, who he never wants to hurt as a human. It's a very split personality thing, kind of like an evil hulk.
2: Jekyll and Hyde, right? Like, he's a good guy as long as he's human, but once he becomes reptilian, he has other motives or yeah. just a different creation entirely? Because I didn't get the sense that Connors was a bad guy, but obviously when we see this lizard, he's going to go kill the emissary.
3: He's going to go kill Regit, right? That's what I took that first attack as, is yeah, he's going after Regit. But in the comics, I had to look because I'm like, I know he's a lizard. I know he fights Spider-Man. But what is his mission? What is his goal? And it turned out his goal was world domination. His goal was to make the entire world a world of lizard people who he could command. He had telepathic control over lizards in the comic. And so he could rule the world by making everyone like him.
2: Okay, that sort of comes through here, but it was, it was a little nebulous and in a movie that's trying to be a more realistic plausible, I feel like, again, not having motivations for this lizard, it just continually became a problem. I felt like this was the character really underserved by this very long movie that gives time for everybody else. It just has no time to explain Connors to us.
3: Well, I feel it's explained why he experiments on himself. Yes. Because they're going to take it away, and he's very vain. He wants that arm. It's His research, it may be for Norman. Yes,
2: that's very clear very early. What he's trying to do for the rest of the movie is
3: not clear. I went with he rampaged as the lizard because of that bestial mentality. It is when he tries to make everybody into lizards that you're like, that makes no freaking sense. I mean, there's a couple dropped lines about how it's not just that Curtis wants an arm. He wants everyone to be on the same playing field. He wants everybody equal. He wants everybody perfect but nobody have a genetic advantage over anybody else or a biological advantage over anybody else. But to try to take that to the next step of if I make you all lizards, we'll all be perfect is underexplained.
0: We never got a scene of him, like, experimenting with eugenics earlier. Like, he had this drive to make everyone perfect. He wanted an arm. But, like, later, he's like, oh, if everyone's a lizard, we'll be stronger and faster and smarter? Like, lizards ain't smart. They're stupid. They got small brains.
3: Maybe that's the point, is he's dumb.
0: (laughs) So he thinks he's smarter. Okay.
3: But I went with it to the point of the lizard was clouding his brain even when he was human. But I didn't like that. It's a fourth enemy who is adult. We had... Green Goblin, he was insane. Doc Ock, he was insane. Venom, he was taken over by the ooze. Now, Lizard, he's insane. I'm tired of villains not intending to
0: be villainous. Yes. And we even get the scene with the dialogue in his head and him talking back and forth with it. Uh, You don't want us to remember Raimi, we'll stop giving these nods to what Raimi did in his films then.
2: They don't handle the villains any better than Raimi did, and that was always a problem for me in every Spider-Man movie, the way that Raimi gave short shrift to what should be major antagonists. I mean, I saw that, at least on paper, this should be the new father figure, that this is the father that can speak to me on a scientific level for Parker, and that Parker and him were getting to know what happened to his father by completing the research. That's what should have been happening conceptually, but nothing of of that sort is happening in these scenes as it plays out. It just becomes, as someone points out, a dinosaur movie. It just becomes Jurassic Park. I honestly thought it was rather redundant, even in look, to the way that Tim Roth looked at the end of the Hulk
3: movie. It felt like, what was he called? Abomination? I said that when I walked out of Comic-Con last year, is he just looked like Abomination. It felt like such a redo. And the biggest disappointment to me is, we talked earlier about who is Spider-Man's arch nemesis, and he has such a great rogues gallery. I think more than any other villain, arguably Batman is number two, who has such a wonderful cadre of villains from which to pull. And I'm honestly wondering four movies in, could they ever get a Spider-Man villain right once? Is it because they're so good on paper, you just can't do them justice on screen in a Spider-Man movie? You'd have to have a Doc Ock movie or a Goblin movie. Here, I feel it's handicapped, By the fact that we're again telling a Spider-Man origin, and so, much like the Green Goblin in the first movie, the supervillain feels tacked on and truncated. Do you think he had something
2: to do with the parents' death? Do you think he actually had a malevolent hand? I feel like they could have told us a little bit. Like, if he was the one that brought the plane down, we needed to
3: know that in this movie. I think they tried to make Connors a good guy, when not a lizard. I think they wanted a split where it's the lizard who's evil, Kirk Connors is not evil, so no, I don't think he had a part in that if they'd gone that way, it would have been totally different and then he would have been just as evil in human form. That's not what they did here. When he's finally reverted to human at the end, he is saved. He is a good guy again.
2: I didn't get it until they explicitly say it, but at some point, Parker goes back to Gwen's bedroom and says that he feels responsibility for stopping the lizard because he created him. And I was like, he did? And then he was like, well, I came up with the formula that put him on the path to doing it. And I'm like, well, that's kind of like the chocolate, buying the chocolate milk thing. I mean, like, you didn't really create them but and he
0: didn't even come up the formula no he gave him his dad's formula but his dad hid it from Connors for a reason well do we know he's hiding it from Connors or was he hiding it from Osborne or someone see that's we don't get answers here you set up a mystery in the first act and then it goes away for the rest of the film like these are these are questions that should be answered so these things pay off. Why does Peter feel responsibility? It's not paid off in this film. Maybe it will a film or two down the line, but not here. Yes, but will I go? And will they make
2: them? That's the thing we risk. When you don't give people an entirely satisfying experience, are they really going to come back two, three, four more times? And at what point are you finally going to relent and give them the crumb? I don't know. I I gotta say, we're now like an hour and 20 minutes into this, and it's not getting any better for
3: me. I agree, but it's the second hour of this film where it becomes an action movie. We get four different fights with the lizard. The first is the lizard on the bridge, which we talked about where he saves the kid, which was exciting. I thought that it was funny he only saved the kid. Rajit was still hanging from a car. Spider-Man didn't save him. (laughs)
0: Okay, so Rashid didn't die. Like, he's still around at, this, at the end of this film. Like, he could have just caught another taxi to go to that veteran's hospital to experiment on people, right? I didn't miss something here.
3: No, for all we know, there's a VA hospital full of lizards.
0: I saw parts of this scene in the trailers, these cars hanging from webs. I'm like, oh, great, we're going to get this big action scene, finally, on the bridge. And we see him save one car, he saves a kid. I like that scene. Again, there's individual scenes here I love. I love that. He takes the mask and tells the kid, put this on, it will give you power. I think that's a great symbol of what's going on with Spider-Man here, that he's this awkward geek, but he puts on the suit and he feels powerful, and he does it with his kid. He is this symbol of hope. One of the things we saw in Raimi Spider-Man films is that he unites New York City, that he gives New York something to get behind and, and to be optimistic about. So I love this little scene here where he saves the kid and the kid puts on the mask and crawls out of the car. But then that's the end of the scene. Like, we just see a bunch of other cars hanging there. Like, this was your chance. Here's what you have those millions of dollars for to do this huge action sequence, and we don't
2: get it. I was just wondering why they gave this role to C. Thomas Howell. (laughs)
3: Soul Man I didn't even recognize him until you're mentioning it wow that's what happened to him huh funny boy Uh, he had been doing War of the
2: Worlds made for sci-fi movies so I guess this is a step up but I like the idea that this scene is yes it's a metaphor you put on a Spider-Man mask and you get to reunite with your dad I think that oh this is where they're going with this movie it will never stop bugging me the fact that we do not see Campbell Scott again at the end of this movie not even in Flashback I didn't want a big action scene. But this is dramatic Spider-Man, I wanted to have that drama resolved.
3: I understand why you're left hanging, much like all those cars, dramatically. But I'm enjoying the fights, and I'm enjoying Spider-Man detecting. I like that he sees all those lizards going into the sewer and decides, well, I should go hang out to find the lizard in the sewer. Now, I've been to New York a lot. I've never seen lizards crawling around. I don't see salamanders on the subway. I see rats, but no salamanders. Is that what happened? Did all the rats get turned into lizards?
2: I mean, the lab rat got turned into a lizard. Did he go out and convert the
3: others? Did the scene get missing? I thought that's what they were trying to tell us. New York rats all became lizards. Oh, I didn't get that. I just took it as he was calling the lizards to him. Which is
0: stupid. I get that the lizard is much like Aquaman in the comics, where he has telepathic powers and he can call lizards to him. But... Why is he in the sewer? We we get this scene with Connors and Peter in the lab, and Peter's like, where's everyone at? And he's like, oh, I gave him the week off. But then he moved the whole lab, he gave him the week off so he could move the lab down in the sewer where all these lizards are just going to him for some reason it's not needed we don't see him leading a army of lizards anywhere and again we get this awesome scene i love the scene where peter goes down into the sewer and he spins this web much like a spider feeling for those vibrations i think it's a great scene it's it's kind of creepy looking as he's hanging there and feeling these different webs and then they start shaking just so we could see the march of the lizards infuriating (laughs) I
3: did like that he used a web like a spider uses a web and awaited the vibrations. I really liked that. It made me think, hmm, that would work better if we thought he had a biological connection with this web and it wasn't just a string he made. But (laughs) I did like that scene. I took him going underground. I'm giving this film a lot. I took it as it was his instinct. The thing that pissed me off is there's the tete-a-tete in the lab. Where is everyone? I sent them home. And this back and forth and back and forth. And I thought during this scene, Connors knew that Peter was Spider-Man. I thought he knew because of their fight on the bridge. And he says Parker at one point in lizard voice before this scene. I'm thinking each knows or at least suspects the other's identity, but they're just going round and round. And I like it because I think that Connors is even more dangerous for knowing. But no, it's not until after the subway lizard scene where... You mentioned an old camera. He uses an old, like, handgun sticker thing to put property of Peter Parker on the back of his camera flash. and Not even one of the nice laser sticker makers, but remember the imprint sticker makers? No
0: 17-year-old knows what that is at this point, (laughs) like... It's something used in a library by an 80-year-old. Yeah, he used to spin a wheel around. You had to punch each letter. Like, nowadays, you just type
2: it on and it spits out the label. Well, maybe Stan Lee taught him when he was hanging out in the library. Another scene, we see them tearing up the school. Lizard comes out of the toilet once he knows that
3: it's Peter. I, I guess the point of this is he's coming for Peter? Yeah, he's coming for Peter because Peter's the one who can stop him. I do like this. I like that it happens in the school. I like that they have multiple rounds. I like that Spider-Man kind of wins on the bridge. He sends Lizard running. In the sewer, Lizard has the upper hand, and Spider-Man gets flushed. I'm really grossed out, because he is he's going through shit water, right? I mean, that is what we crap in, is what Spider-Man is flushed
2: in. They don't really play that up. That's why I gotta say, even if, you know, you want to have a secret lab, putting it in a contaminated sewer, you're not going to get the results you want. I feel like there are things in the environment that are going to muck up the experiment. You just never build a lab in a sewer. It's just a bad idea.
3: And then this third one at the school. I was reminded again of Incredible Hulk because of the fight in the archway with all the windows. And he throws Gwen out the window. And the cops are all outside. And it's reminding me of the scene where Banner is trapped in the archway of the school and
0: the military is outside. You know, this scene is when it really hit me how underwhelming the score was in the film. Like, here, to me, this is probably, like, one of the biggest fight scenes in the film. And and the music, it totally pulled me out. I don't know what it was. It just was so understated that the scene, I think, lost a lot of the power that it could have had if it had a decent score.
3: I agree completely. James Horner, not good on this one. Leave him for boats. Anything with a boat in it, he's fine.
2: You're not going to get me to say anything bad about James Horner as a man that's written great scores, Alien, Titanic, Star Trek II, but this
3: one belongs in the toilet. But all of those are naval themes. Even Star Trek 2 has a very naval feel about it.
2: The problem is that these action scenes aren't good. The problem is that they don't feel connected to ideas, that I don't feel like the characters really have a great relationship and a reason to be fighting. And when that happens, no matter
3: how spectacular the special effects are, and they're pretty good, I just don't care. They're pretty good. Sometimes I think they overdid it. They try to have Spider-Man do things that he just goes places where he couldn't fit. When he's web-swinging all of that, I completely buy the physicality of him. But when he's fighting the lizard and, like, in this scene in the school, webbing him up and crawling through his legs, he moves too fast. He looks like a cartoon. And I just think it is a problem with what the animators decided they should have him doing. Things that... Physically of his size, could not be done. Squeezing in places, he could not fit.
0: I, I kind of like that scene when he—they uh, were obviously trying to make him look like a spider webbing up his prey. I like that. I was willing to go with it because it is Spider-Man. I, I thought the effects overall were an improvement, especially with Spider-Man. You know, with Raimi's films, when spider Man's swinging around, it never feels like there's a physical character here. I, I felt like there was a person here swinging around. I, I thought it was a step up overall.
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Best effects of any Spider-Man movie. Much better than Chinese Web, might I add.
0: <laughs> that said,
3: it just has problems. Do we know if Garfield is actually in the suit? Did he do any of this work at all? A ton of it. Webb wanted him in the suit as much as possible. Because, again, 500 days of summer. But... And it's very noticeable when he is and when he isn't. The CGI's body language and the stunt double's body language is totally different than Garfield's body language. But anytime he's standing around, anytime he's talking, anytime he's looking creepy, that's all Garfield. Yeah, it looked that way. I I believed it. Nicholas Hammond is pissed
0: during the school fight. Though one of my favorite Stanley cameos right here. It, it's goofy. It takes you away from the danger, I think, a little bit. As all we hear is what this classical music that the librarian Stanley is listening to, while the lizard and Spider-Man fight behind him, he never noticed what's going on. But I liked it. I, I thought it was an appropriate Stanley cameo. He didn't speak at all, which I prefer.
3: <laughs> it was nice. It was a nice change of pace that he didn't speak. It also showed that the fight would have been scored much better to Mozart and Bach than to Horner. Yes. And I like it when they do the Stanley cameos like this when you're not looking for a Stan Lee cameo. When they do it in the beginning, you're looking for it. When they do it at the end, you're like, wait, was Stan Lee in this? Here, it's just an unexpected surprise and a wonderful bit of comedy in the midst of some exciting action. But when we get to the final fight, I'm surprised we're there already. And I'm, again, confused. He's going to turn cops into lizards with his aerosol spray.
2: They had set that up so painfully badly in the first part of the movie, though. I mean, they walk up to the device and they're like, well, this could actually disseminate a toxin that might Might cover a whole city. I'm like, hmm. I wonder what's going
3: to happen at
2: the end.
3: Yeah, that was a painful thing, and so useless that they said they'd never use it. So we've kept it here in a room full
0: of dry ice. Then smoke. Even more head scratching is that. Who's going to make the antidote for this serum? Oh, God. Gwen Stacy. Like, Peter, hey, go to the lab and cook up. I don't know. Did she throw some chemicals in a microwave, set it for eight minutes, and cook it up? Like, she just pushes a button and it makes an antidote? This is dumb. That is
3: really dumb, and it goes back to what you said, Jacob, about this being like a movie not just about teenagers, but aimed at teenagers, where teenagers can do anything, and because she's an intern and she's done anti-venoms or something for Connors in the past, she can go, if give it a sample, and instantly find the cure. It's not going to take hours, it's going to take minutes, and boom, that is so convenience, and annoying. I got an easy fix for this, too. They
2: did not have to have her working at Oscorp. They could have been lab partners at the high school. He could have handed it to her and his father's ID badge and said, you need to go to this lab to finish our formula. They did not have to write it this way. I know that they need to put work Gwen into the climax. I think it works well that she's got the antidote and that
3: Lizard is chasing after her. But this setup is terrible. I was glad, though, because when she went to Oscorp, and she's doing this, and she's evacuating the building, and all of a sudden, I had this big internal sigh, oh, God, it's Mary Jane Part 4, she's going to be the damsel in distress. Well, no, she is in danger, she's in a building with the lizard, but then she gets out, and... She's not part of the climax, and I was glad they didn't go to that trope
0: again. But what did you think about the score during that scene? Now we're going into... I I went back to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre retrospective, and Stuart praising the pots and pans scores being banged around during that original. We're hitting the piano keys and random notes, and... I rolled my eyes.
3: I'm like, oh my god, we want danger. We are literally banging the keys. Did James Horner bring in his grandson and go, just pound, it's our score. That's what I felt like. That stuff worked in the 50s, but it was so out of place here. This is the point where I would have fired James Horner and said, okay, things aren't working out. Hell, let's bring back Christopher Young, for Christ's sake.
2: You know what? It wouldn't have been any worse if you had cast James Horner as the lizard and made Ricey Fonz do the score. I feel like... Both of them are people I would have fired early for what they were turning in. (laughs) I don't like this lizard. He is disguised by special effects at this point, and I guess that helps, but I don't care in this ending. Once you introduce the idea that there is an antidote, doesn't it remove any suspense from the scene? I really thought, okay, everyone's going to be turned into lizards by the gas, and then she's going to fire the antidote, and everyone will be fine. Once you say that the antidote is done and that she's cooked it up, there is no more tension anymore. We know
0: how this is all going to play out. Talk about killing tension in this film, during this climax, there's the antidote, but then there's a scene where the cops surround Peter while he's trying to get to Oscorp to stop the lizard, and they unmask him, and Captain Stacy finds out it's Peter, and at that moment, I knew he was dead in the film. Unless they're going to go totally Nolan, and you're going Commissioner Gordon and Batman with the relationship, I knew that that was done. I love that whole triangle so much, and they ruined it here, because I knew he was dead. I did
3: not know he was dead. I was surprised that they went with it. If you go to the comics, Captain Stacy didn't live all that long. He was introduced, and a couple years later, he was killed, like I said, in that battle between Dr. Octopus and Spider-Man. And he revealed, again, a dying declaration that he knew Peter Parker was Spider-Man. And he approved of Peter Parker dating Gwen Stacy because he was one of the cops who was championing Spider-Man in a comic where everybody hates Spider-Man. And so when it found out here, and he goes, yes, go, I never, ever expected that they'd hit the same note twice. They killed Uncle Ben, why would they kill Gwen's dad, you know? It felt redundant to me, so I never thought they'd do it. And they did. And they make a bigger deal out of his death than Ben's death. Emotionally, I guess it
2: brings him together with Gwen. Now they're the same. They both lose their father figures. And, you know, it's uh, really all about the romance here. That's what Mark Webb wants to focus on and stay focused on. Leary is written to die the same way that Ben is written to die. But I
3: didn't know it until the end. I didn't either. Just never expected they'd do that in this movie. Maybe next movie. I didn't realize that you got both Martin Sheen and Dennis Leary here to kill them. But yeah, that's what happens. I was surprised that Peter's identity was revealed because at this point, Gwen knows, Connors knows. I get the impression May knows because she gets this look on her face when Peter's watching TV and Stacy says, we're calling a manhunt for Spider-Man and Peter storms out. And the fact that Peter keeps coming home bruised and battered, I get the feeling it's an unspoken knowledge between them, but May's like, okay, he's out there, he's Spider-Man, and that's why he comes home all
0: beat to crap. Yeah, I never knew what her take was, even till the end. Peter finally brings home those, what, organic eggs or whatever, and he's all beat up, but if she knows, she's not letting on. I I didn't feel she ever gave a clue either way.
3: He's either Spider-Man or he's in a fight club, but I didn't think that all the cops would know, and when he does his really cool move of webbing their eyes and staying in the shadow, I didn't think that Captain Stacy would find out. And when he does, I'm like, well, okay, well, a lot like Batman Begins, (laughs) so many people are finding out his true identity here. But I liked the end. I liked the use of the New Yorkers here. He gets shot in the leg by an overzealous cop, and he can't get there. Again, he dodged how many bullets earlier, but he can't dodge his exactly. taser, and then he can't dodge this
0: bullet. The Spidey senses are letting out.
3: But he has to get there. We've seen New Yorkers come to Spider-Man's aid in two out of three films so far. And here, see Thomas Howell, he brings the Teamsters to his aid by lining up the cranes. Is it a little cheesy? Yes, but it's better than throwing tomatoes at the Green Goblin.
0: I'm right there with you, Arnie. It is cheesy, but I like the metaphor. I like that however hard-edged you are, Teamster, New Yorker, whatever, here's the symbol that people come behind that inspires them to be better. And they line up those cranes, again, Totally cheesy, especially when he can't really run, and he misses that crane, and he falls, and then you see the the swooping crane pulls up, and he's attached to it. I'm going with it. Like, this scene wins me over.
3: The final fight is what it is. Some of the 3D here really worked for me. I gotta say, there are four 3D moments that really stuck out. One is just a panning shot of the city, and the Chrysler building poked me in the eye and scared me. And the rest all come here at the end, where I feel like the 3D really enhanced this film. For much of the film, I was thinking, God, this was filmed in 3D? It felt so flat. But at the end, I think it really came together. I feel in the swinging moments is where I noticed the 3D. None other. I also wondered if they were going to kill the lizard, because we've talked so many times in these podcasts about the habit of killing the villain, and I'm like, you know, Connors wasn't really a bad guy. Are we going to kill the lizard? And so when they disperse the cure, I'd forgotten that the cops had become lizards. We, didn't, we don't ever see them attack people, right? We don't see lizard cops terrorize the city.
0: That is crap. You do not set up monster dinosaur people in the third act to not have them do anything in that third act. Where is the terror? Like, you have lizard people running around, you got slee stacks in New York, and they don't do a damn
2: thing. They lay on the ground in agony. The terror is that you're going to be turned into one, not that they're going to do anything bad. And, uh, you know, it's part of the quandary of not having a really great villain or not really knowing what the villain's evil plan is going to do. I mean, I thought that they would be his henchmen. I honestly thought he would get a gang and he would use all of them to bust into Oscorp, but he doesn't need them.
3: No, I would have liked it if it would have not allowed Captain Stacy to be killed by the lizard, but if he and Peter worked together where lizard people are rampaging through New York, Captain Stacy, you and your policeman contain the damage of the grunts while I go fight the big lizard. I would have liked that, given the cops something heroic to do as well. We don't see that. Captain Stacy comes to the Oscorp tower, and I did like how they used cold to stop the lizard and the regrowth. I'm I'm enjoying the fight. It's nothing great, but I'm enjoying myself during it, and I fall off my seat when lizard got Stacy. But then the dispersing of the cure, it was there. I think the lizard talks too much. He's like, yes, I win, and then he realizes it's blue instead of green.
0: Yeah, the cold thing is, like, it's not even a difficult machine. It's not like in the Avengers where you had to use one of, like, Loki's canes to, like, see- get through the forest field, no. just pop open the door stick in the antidote, close it and it shoots up over New York
2: I got why they had to kill Leary and like I said it, it really is symmetry with what happened with Ben it brings the kids closer it also seals her doom he makes Peter, promise him that he's going to keep Stacy out of it. And you don't disobey what the old people tell you. If you do that, you are going to be punished for it. You have to listen to old people and their wisdom. And they tell us at the end of this, they have no intention of honoring that promise. Ergo, she's dead too. <laughs>
3: I was kind of groaning again, the shadow of Raimi. I'm like, really? They're going to break up again at the end? We're going through this again? I liked that this Peter Parker didn't have quite the pathos of Tobey Maguire's and that he was at least going to get the girl. And on the day of her father's funeral, he's like, no, I'm breaking up with you and not telling her why. Wow, that's cool. That is some cold stuff. But then it's teased at the end. And again, I felt 500 Days of Summer, the best promises are the one you can't keep. Just like kind of the way that movie ends on the promise of a hopeful note, if not the confirmation of one.
0: You just wasted two hours and 15 minutes, but we promise we'll give you some hints to what happened to Peter Perrins in the next film.
3: I don't think the relationship, I mean, 500 Days of Summer, I don't think they expect to make 500 Days of Autumn. I think that that ending note is that enough to tell you, hey, this is a happy ending. But with Spider-Man... Yeah, we're all sitting here, the studio sitting here saying, let's set it up so Spider-Man 2 can continue the drama. Funny enough,
2: the quote-unquote happy ending makes me realize that that's the end for her. If you have promised someone to keep her out of danger and you've killed two characters when promises are broken, maybe superficially you think, oh, they're going to get together anyway. I'm thinking, yeah, next movie, your neck is broken. (laughs)
3: I wonder what blonde they'll hire to dye her hair red and make her marry Jane.
0: This ending scene, you have the teacher, you know, spelling out the thesis of the film. People say there's only ten plots in all stories, but there's really only one. Who are you? And so that's what we're supposed to get. Who is Peter Parker? Is he really any more responsible at the end of this film than he was at the beginning? Like, here he is, putting his girlfriend at danger. Now, he's Spider-Man, he's going to be fighting supervillains, and I'm going to break that promise I made to your dad. I'm going to keep being your boyfriend, and you're probably going to die from it.
3: Yeah, I hadn't thought about it now that you guys have both said it. I will be expecting it in the second one. In fact, though, I might like it if Green Goblin throws her off a bridge. That could be a good thing to do in a movie. Hey, it's Dark Knight, right? Let's kill the girlfriend.
2: Indeed. I definitely took it as you with the extra scene that comes in the middle of the credits. The villain next time has to be Osborne. There'll be no more teasing about that. That man in the shadows, it has to be the guy pulling the strings. It has to be Goblin next time. They can't waste any more time with anybody else. I just don't know if it isn't Richard Parker. That's my only question at this point. I think that Norman Osborne is the fo- missing father.
3: I don't think they're the same person. Columbia has announced this is part of a trilogy They've already got a draft for the second one. It's going through rewrites. They already have a release date, May of 2014, so less than two years. They're going to have to be filming by the end of this year, waiting to see if it really happens, but they've got all that in motion. So I'm not convinced it's all set up for the sequel. I think they're going for three and it's going to be Spider-Man 3, Scream 3. If Richard Parker returns, it's an in Installment 3. Installment 2 is just going to deepen mysteries. But maybe, depending on how this one is received, that could change. I also wonder if they'll get to Green Goblin next time. They did do that with Batman, and this movie feels to me like they're trying to emulate Batman Begins. They got to Joker in Part 2. Maybe they will get to Goblin in Part 2. I wonder if Goblin will once again be a puppet master behind the strings in Part 2 two and we'll get to Goblin finally in part three but it's all nebulous it's all dependent upon the success of this movie and I have to say I enjoyed this film but I'm not sitting here on the edge of my seat like I was at the end of X-Men 2 or Iron Man 1 where I'm like oh my god I can't wait for them they gotta get the sequel out next year and tell me now I'm like All right, if this movie does well, maybe I'll find out. If the movie doesn't, and it feels like the underdog of the summer, it's hard to believe Spider-Man is the underdog, but sandwiched between the juggernauts of Avengers and Batman, Spider-Man feels like an also ran. And if it becomes this year's Green Lantern, maybe we'll never know. And maybe five years from now, because Columbia will not lose that license, we'll have Reboot 2 and Andrew Garfield is the George Lazenby of the spider man So, Jacob, Stuart, do you recommend The Amazing Spider-Man? Was it amazing enough? Jacob? Or was it amazing at
0: all? Look, I want to take this film on its own terms. We talked a lot about it being in the shadow of Raimi. We talked a lot of the influences that the Nolan films may have had on this. It's hard, but I want to try to take this film on its own merits. And look. I loved Andrew Garfield as Peter Parker. I loved his Spider-Man. I loved the suit. I loved Emma Stone as Gwen Stacy. I loved the little relationship moments. Dennis Leary, Parker, Gwen, that, that kind of weird triangle there. I liked the way that this Spider-Man moved. I liked all these elements and yet I didn't enjoy this film. There wasn't enough payoff for me. You set up this mystery of the parents. You set up Rashid going to transform veterans into experiment on them, and that just gets dropped. You just drop the whole storyline about this guy who killed Ben Parker. That's just not good storytelling to me. We talked about how maybe this was influenced by TV storytelling. I got to sit down and watch the next installment and the installment after that. I don't want that in a film. When I sit down, I want a self-contained story. Yes, you could have elements that can be built upon in the next movie, but I want a complete story. If you're going to set up mysteries, I want answers to them. You could deepen those mysteries next time, but I want some answers in this film. And I don't get that for all the things that I love more than the rainy films. I love, you know, the actors here more in the portrayal of, of the core characters more, but I hate this script. It's an awful story. And that's what ruins this for me. And I almost feel like Arnie did with Batman and Robin in a way. I do not recommend The Amazing Spider-Man, but I want to see more Spider-Man films with these characters (laughs) because I like them so much. So yes, if there's a sequel, I'll go there because I want to see a good film with these people in it. But I do not recommend The Amazing Spider-Man.
2: Stewart. I think this is the worst Spider-Man theatrical movie there is. And that includes three. It's certainly the least entertaining. I mean, say what you will about the third one, at least I was engaged. I was really bored in this movie. Really bored. I gave it the hour. I knew I was going to be bored with the origin story and it did not disappoint. I was bored. But once the movie that I thought I had come for did not materialize and it became a sort of rote battle movie with a lizard, even the effects felt like something I'd seen before. This movie is not amazing. It's Amazing. I mean, I was just going, Meh, meh, how's Spider-Man? Meh, how's the action? Meh, how's the 3D? Meh. I couldn't be more underwhelmed with this movie. I don't dislike it. I just don't care. And I don't want any more of this at all. I don't think there will be. I think that this is Superman Returns. I think this is a movie that will make a bunch of money up front, and then everyone will realize that they really didn't want this direction at all. Not
3: recommend. Unlike Spider-Man 2, I get what you guys are saying. I completely see your points. And it just comes down to a matter of taste. I feel this summer, Spider-Man is caught in the shadows. It's not just a darker Spider-Man, but there are two titans battling this summer. There's Avengers, which I believe ushered in a new era of superhero films. The way Batman Begins started the dark superhero thing. The Dark Knight Rises will end it. Avengers broke box office records, top grossing superhero movie of all time. It is what superhero films will be emulating in the future. Batman, because the Dark Knight was so loved... Everybody's looking forward to it. Spider-Man here in the middle, I keep making comparisons to Green Lantern last year, which is not where Spider-Man should be, but it's what it feels like is, oh, yeah, there's a superhero movie. Oh, yeah, it kind of looks good. Yeah, I kind of want to see that. All this kind of, and that's a reaction to Raimi's Spider-Man 3 kind of pissing everybody off five years passing, and being in such a super spandexy, capey summer that this becomes the underdog. That all being said, I enjoyed it. And I think any other summer, I think last summer, this movie would have shown a lot brighter. It is weaker by comparison to what came a few months ago and what's looming large in a couple of weeks. I'll give you it's better than Green Lantern and Thor. I think that, This movie, I'm like you, Jacob. I have to separate my expectations. I have to separate out Raimi. And if you've never seen the Raimi films and aren't making direct comparisons, this movie looks a lot better. This movie is entertaining. The performances are engaging. I'm a bit off on Andrew Garfield, especially in some of the Spider-Man scenes, like the Car Thief one. I'm a bit off on Rise Ivins. I'm a bit frustrated by the lack of resolution and the reliance upon a future movie. Stuart, you say television, but television started with film serials. And I feel that this movie is going way back to the old days of the serials. And it's not next week we come back and give more money, but two, three years from now they want us to. I don't know if they will, but taken as just a unit, and not looking at what they didn't give me, but looking at what they did. I enjoyed this movie enough to recommend it. There's nothing here that I feel isn't recommendable. It's fine. It isn't the worst Spider-Man film, because nothing in here pissed me off the way Spider-Man 3 pissed me off. It doesn't come close to swinging as high as Spider-Man 1 and 2. And I probably doesn't come close to swinging as high as Avengers and Dark Knight Rises. But for what it is... It's a recommendable film. There's no way I can say, oh God, you shouldn't see this. No, it's fun. It's a good diversion. It's a good time at the movies, so I recommend The Amazing Spider-Man. And with that, this is the end, not just of our Spider-Man series, but of the... Over a year in the making, now playing Marvel Comics Movie Retrospective. If you're listening to us for the first time, or the Spider-Man series, or Avengers is where you jumped on, you can head to nowplayingpodcast.com. If there is a live-action Marvel movie, we now have covered it, and it is in our archives. Be it television's Doctor Strange, be it the unreleased Corman Fantastic Four... I almost feel like getting a monumental tattoo, you know, just to mark this. Like, I need a magnet for the back of my car, like people who run marathons. There's scars on my eyeballs from it. That's tattoo enough, I think.
2: (laughs) I'm happy to be done with this. Everyone knows I'm not the comic book guy. Looking back, was it worth it? Did I experience things that I wouldn't normally have been? I will say this. It started strong. Well, not Howard the Duck and Man thing. Those were some of the worst, but... (laughs) Kick-Ass and the X-Men franchise, those ones I really did enjoy. And everything that I saw in between the real Avengers movies and X-Men, I could have lived without. It was a lot of mediocre. On the whole, the average for a Marvel movie is kind of meh. A lot of them just kind of play as merely adequate, which wasn't enough for me to give a lot of recommends. Looking back on these 40-some-odd movies, I think there's only 10 of them that I said I would watch again.
0: Unlike Stewart, I'm a fan of comic books, I'm a fan of superheroes, I don't mind the genre, sitting down, watching all these films in such a close period of time, I think it's like if you had sat down and watched any series of genre films, there's a lot of mediocre stuff, some really, really good stuff, some really, really bad stuff, but most of it lies in between and you know it, it, whether you recommend it or not it, it's, it's kind of a fine line sometimes but a lot of these films I had seen it, it was interesting watching some of the stuff from the 70s, Doctor Strange the Spider-Man stuff and, and watching some of those unearthed gems the, those cult things you hear about like Corman's Fantastic Four. It was fun going getting to go through all those but at the end of the day I think my opinion of this would be like any series of genre films most of it's kind of in the middle mediocre but I, I'm glad i glad I got to revisit some of the great films in the genre
3: for me looking back there were some darker days I can't say I went through times that I didn't enjoy it but when we were in Fantastic Four and we were in Blade the road looked long and even early this year with the TV stuff and the break with Ghost Rider and then more TV stuff, it may have been my suggestion. I'm the one who brought up, do we do the TV stuff? But I felt like David Banner when we were on The Hulk. I was walking a long road. And a lot of times I felt like I was walking it alone. You guys were watching, but you weren't there with me. (laughs) But looking at favorites, I've mentioned my favorite individual movies all the time of X-Men First Class 2, Kick-Ass, but If I recommended it, I had a good time with it. I've had a good time with this Marvel series. I'm less excited about Bond. I really am. I'm the newbie on Bond, and much like you being the newbie on the comic movies, if we're a newbie on something and there's this much of it, there's probably a reason we didn't see it. And for me, I'm not sure spy films are my genre, so, Stuart, I'm putting on your shoes for a long walk for the rest of this year. But at least we do have some more comic book movies with Batman next. And then we get to some more comfortable genres with zombie movies for our fall donation series, Romero's. And then some slasher films for Christmas. Because what goes better with Thanksgiving turkey and Christmas presents than Silent Night, Deadly Night and New Year's Evil? And listeners, head to our forums where I'll be posting a full schedule for the rest of 2012 and what Now Playing is doing so you can set up your Netflix queue.
0: It's funny, you guys, because you keep acting like we're done. Marvel hasn't thrown in the towel. (laughs) We already got so many properties announced. We'll be busy for quite some time. We're just, this isn't the end. This is a break.
2: (laughs) Maybe that's all it is. But yes, they do have dates for a lot of these things.
3: Yes. I mean, if we look at it by franchise, the Marvel Studios that have the official Marvel movies, the Avengers has emboldened them. Iron Man 3 is next year. Thor 2 is next year. Captain America 2 is the year after that. And then the untitled Marvel movie that leaked recently is probably going to be Guardians of the Galaxy about an interplanetary group of crime fighters from the future, including
0: a raccoon! Jesus. Rocket, Rocket raccoon. raccoon! I love this character. He's a raccoon that flies in space. And shoots guns. Yes. Big
2: guns. Lindsay Lohan, your comeback is calling ya. There's now a reason why you have those, uh, <laughs> it isn't just from your late night exhaustion. And don't forget Groot, the talking tree. This has got to be the Disney influence, right? I mean, Marvel recently went under the umbrella of Disney Corporation, and this sounds really kitty, right? Th- there's no raccoon
3: that's going to hang out with Captain America and Hulk, right? This is its own thing. From what I understand, this is actually to help explain Thanos, and Guardians of the Galaxy <gasps> will lead directly into Avengers 2, where they will team up with Cap and fight
0: Thanos. Oh, no! It's just so fun explaining this stuff to Stuart. I'm now
2: going to do what I'm going to hate. I'm going to fall on my knees, look at the heavens, and scream, (laughs) No!
3: Don't you want to see Robert Downey Jr. in a talking raccoon? Oh, I really don't. I'm sure it's something he's hallucinated many times. It'll be great. (laughs) All the ones that they've lined up for sequels,
2: I thought I was okay with until I'm hearing this. And now I'm like, no, please. Where's my Doctor Strange movie, for Christ's sake? I'm still waiting for that to make sense. I still want to see them do that with a big budget.
3: And they're also talking about the other new franchise, because they can't just rest on their laurels. Robert Downey Jr. is not going to be affordable forever. Edgar Wright from Scott Pilgrim vs. the World and the Shaun of the Dead hot fuzz is lined up to do Ant-Man, another Avenger.
2: I assume this character grows small, as small as the box office is going to be if
3: it's as underwhelming as it sounds. (laughs) Yeah, but at times he also grows big and becomes giant man.
2: I like Edgar Wright. I think he's got a funny sensibility. If they play it for comedy, if Simon Pegg is Ant-Man, I may be down for that. But then again, Michelle Gondry didn't get me to see Green Hornet. So that sounds like a bad property. That sounds like a C-lister. That sounds like they're digging, if not the bottom of the barrel, they're definitely in the lower half of their properties.
3: They're choosing to do this instead of Black Panther. I'm just most excited of all of these about Kick-Ass 2, but I'm also most worried because Matthew Vaughn, he's doing X-Men 2 instead, so he's not returning for Kick-Ass 2, he's just going to produce, but I'm so happy they're finally getting that off the ground. But it's not just all Marvel. Fox is plowing ahead with its mutant franchise with both the Wolverine and X-Men First Class 2. I'm more excited for one than the other. You know what? The Wolverine's supposed to go to Japan, and they're not getting the same director
2: that they did for the first Wolverine movie. So I'm encouraged by any of that. Anything they want to do with X-Men, I'm definitely game for that. And I believe those are one's happening next summer, and one's happening the summer after. Plus, Fox is still holding on to Daredevil. It might be a TV show, it might be a movie, and Fantastic Four, they're still trying to figure out what the hell they can do with that. I mean, yeah, I recognize that this is as much in my future as it is in my past, but it is nice to finally be focusing on something a little bit more exciting. I'm looking for a break. I'm looking for a Bond break.
3: Yeah, you mentioned Bond, but your superhero days are far from over. We are returning to Batman starting next week. We took a Spider-Man break, two movies a week for the past three weeks. It was a heavy load. We are returning back to our normal Tuesday schedule for now and doing Batman with Batman Begins next week on Tuesday, then The Dark Knight, and finally Dark Knight Rises. And I'm excited to see what's going to happen. There was another trailer before Amazing Spider-Man for Dark Knight Rises. I'm anxious to see what the hell we're going to get, but we will be talking about that next week. So, Stuart and Jacob, thank you so much for joining me for the past year for Marvel. Let's go do some DC, shall we? I'm excited. I can't wait. And remember, listeners, with great podcasts come great responsibility.
1: It's all my fault. I drove Spider-Man away. He was the only one who could have stopped Octavius. Yes. Spider-Man was a hero. I just couldn't see it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing Spider-Man Retrospective Series.
3: It's good to have you back, Spider-Man
1: part of our Marvel Comics movie retrospective series. It's hip, it's now, it's wild. Well, and how. Crawl on the World Wide Web to nowplayingpodcast.com each Tuesday and Friday as we review another Spider-Man movie through the release of The Amazing Spider-Man in July. What are you waiting for? Chinese New Year? Go, go, go! And be sure to visit the Vinganza Media Gazette at venganza forward slash gazette to read arnie's reviews of every episode of the 1970s spider-man tv series far be it for me to interfere with the first amendment be my guest while at now playing go to our archives you can find reviews of other comic-based movie series such as the avengers batman x-men blade ghost rider and punisher hey where are all my comic books oh those dreadful things,
3: I gave those away.
1: We also have non-comic-based movie reviews, such as Star Trek, Rocky, Transformers, The X-Files, Tron, and many more. There are bigger
0: things happening here than
1: me and you. You will also find individual movie reviews, such as Green Lantern, Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World.
0: I am so loving this. Oh, me too.
1: While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss this show with other listeners. I came. Looks like just in the nick of time. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. I'll be there. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I'm going. I'll be here when you get back. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Everybody needs help sometimes, Peter. Even Spider-Man. You can find a donate button using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Meat. I'll send you a nice box of Christmas
0: meat. Best I can do. Get out of
1: here. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more.
0: Looks uncomfortable. It gets kind of itchy. It rides up in the crotch
1: a little bit, too. Now Playing's Spider-Man Retrospective series is edited by Arnie. Misery, misery, misery. That's what you've chosen. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. And I've never even seen his face. Now Playing is not affiliated with Marvel Enterprises or Columbia Pictures. Spider-Man and all that the Marvel Universe contains is the property and trademark of the Disney Company. And no infringement is intended. What are you, his lawyer? Get out of here. Let him sue me. Get rich like a normal person. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Vinganza Media Incorporated. I missed the part where that's my problem. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production. Copyright 2012. All rights reserved. Enough said.
3: Between those two characters whose names I'm both blanking, between Summer and Third Rock from the Sun, kid, what's his name? Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Joseph Gordon of... Joseph. You mean Joseph. Robert? Or <laughs> uh, Robin? <laughs> yes. It was uh, Robin with Agent Coulson, and who else was in it? It's a weird way to look at movies, always identifying by their superheroes. <laughs> between Summer and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and here between Gwen Stacy and Peter Parker. But beyond that,
0: weird choice.
3: Jacob, have you seen it? Do you want to get in on it?
0: Um... It, it surprises me, Arnie, that you had to watch a rom com as research for this and you just didn't watch it because you usually watch them. <laughs> so,
3: but do, you, I ha- do you have anything to say about that movie or just <laughs> digging on my taste in <laughs> film? I just want to say it. No. I'm not kidding. I would see anything with him in it. What was that thing I- he did with Sandra Bullock? Two if by C. <laughs> I saw that because he was in it. That was actually the moment. That was the breaking point. Yeah. You it was breaking point. It Were you just quizzing him, Stuart, to see
2: if he's told the truth? Yeah. I wanted to know if he had gone to that, to that deep into it. And I, I didn't
3: even have to IMDB it. It was on the tip of my tongue, wasn't it? <laughs> it was.
2: Holy shit. Two
0: if by sea. Woof. You know, but I know he's been I, doing. I- oh.